committee will come to order. Good morning, everyone. Uh, today we have with us Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to discuss the State Department's fiscal year 2021 budget request. Though, if history is any judge, Secretary Pompeo, you will face a wide variety of questions that extend beyond the department's budget, which I know you can handle. The, the United States and our allies and partners continue to face serious foreign challenges that will test us for decades to come. China, under the rule of the Chinese Communist Party, is our chief competitor. Russia, too, remains a key adversary. The efforts of these two nations to sow discord, wreak havoc, and undo the free and open uh, international order upon which shared prosperity and security are built have reached new heights. They have stepped up disinformation and, mis and manipulated international institutions, suppressed the voices of freedom and democracy, propped up heinous dictators, coerced and invaded their neighbors, and denied millions of people access to life-saving humanitarian assistance. We have a long road ahead of us in this new era of great power competition. We need sustained political will. These challenges require nothing less. On top of uh, all of this, we are confronted by a new and acute challenge, a biological enemy that we still do not fully understand, an enemy that in six short months has inflicted levels of physical and economic harm upon the world that we have not seen in more than 100 years. Here again, China especially, but also Russia, has played a destructive role. From withholding vital global health data to spreading disinformation and actively stealing vaccine research, China and Russia have again chosen to be and proven themselves to be adversaries. Sanctioning bad uh, actors will never be enough. To confront these and other challenges, the department will need to rely upon a vast array of tools and resources. Our diplomats must be backed by effective and efficient assistance so they can help partners help themselves and contribute to the growth of healthier, more stable societies. We are eager to support a budget that will advance these critical interests it, uh, and support the State Department's most critical resources, its people. As the coronavirus emerged from China and accelerated across the globe, you were forced to pull back thousands of our diplomats and their families. But you, just, you, you didn't just pack up and go without a thought of your fellow Americans. Instead, the department launched an unprecedented mission to help return more than 100,000 Americans safely home. All of us who participated in that are greatly appreciate, uh, appreciative of the uh, department's work in that regard. In some cases, this involved convincing countries to reopen their airspace for flights and roads for transport. In other places, you even chartered planes to get our American people home. There are lots of folks uh, who may never come in contact with the department, yet now more than 100,000 Americans uh, who can personally attest to the tremendous work that the department does for our people every day. As the challenges get more numerous and complex, we want to support a State Department that is up to the task, fully funded, staffed, and equipped to advance U.S. national interests on all fronts and at all times. We obviously have threats that impede this, be it health or security, but as the saying goes, all politics are local. Our adversaries understand this all too well. We need our diplomats to be local too. On a personal note, in closing, let me say I want to publicly uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Secretary, for 
uh, your accessibility uh, that you've had as secretary. As you know, in operating this committee, it's essential uh, that I have instant access to facts and information. And at times when I haven't been able to get that through the usual intelligence channels, you've always made yourself instantly accessible. And uh, I uh, sincerely appreciate that. Uh, when I'm asked for advice from uh, other second branch entities or individuals or even uh, allies of ours, it is, in, it is absolutely imperative that I have this information. You have always provided that. And uh, when you answer the phone, sometimes I never know where you are in the globe or what time it is, but you've always made it happen. And for that, I uh, have been and uh, remain very grateful. Uh, with that, Senator Menendez. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, this morning, Mr. Secretary. It's been a while since you have joined us, and I appreciate your enthusiasm for fulfilling this part of uh, your constitutional responsibilities. But if past is precedent, I don't imagine we're going to see you here anytime soon. So while this is your opportunity to defend your stunningly ill-conceived request to slash the budget of our foreign policy instruments, I'd also like to take a wholesale look on how your department has represented the American people and American interests on the world stage over the past year. And unfortunately, that view is not good, to say the least. Under your watch, the United States has faced setback after setback on the world stage, ceding leverage and influence to our stated adversaries. Today, Iran is much closer to a nuclear bomb than when you came into office. And despite your maximum pressure campaign, Iran and its proxies continue to create problems throughout the Middle East. While the 2017 National Security Strategy details that, quote, Russia wants to weaken U.S. influence in the world and divide us from our allies and partners and undermine the legitimacy of democracies, close quote, the president and your administration has at best not seriously addressed this threat. You have never fully used the tools we provided in CATSA, and at worst, simply abetted Putin's efforts. Withdrawing forces from Germany, failing to take action when evidence emerged that Russia was paying bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and twice redirecting funds from the European Deterrence Initiative to pay for President Trump's wasteful border wall in September of 2019 and April 2020. Meanwhile, the administration's uh, confrontational bluster against China has not stopped China's march in the South China Sea, in Hong Kong, in suppressing and oppressing its own people. Our North Korea diplomacy, which you assured this committee you'd have wrapped up within a year, about two years ago, appears to have flatlined, leaving North Korea with a more capable nuclear and ballistic missile program. Across Africa, the State Department has been woefully absent on issue after issue after issue, most recently in its engagement on negotiations related to management of Nile waters. In the Western Hemisphere, the entirety of our approach seems to be xenophobic, anti-immigrant hysteria and bullying, all while gutting our institutional capacity to deal with the root causes of migration. There is bipartisan support for a Venezuela policy. Yet your approach has left millions of Venezuelans still suffering, and the administration won't even support those who are already exiled here. And even as we struggle with an opioid epidemic, you propose cutting our international narcotics and law enforcement. On climate change, your department has not just failed to be part of the solution, but is becoming part of the problem, actively undermining international efforts to safeguard 
our planet's future. Our allies in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East routinely wonder out loud whether we can really be counted on. And our values have been denigrated. From President Trump's reported green lighting of concentration cramps in Xinjiang to the revisionist and at times sometimes repulsive views espoused by your so-called unalienable rights commission. And in the face of a global pandemic, when our scientists, our technology, and our diplomats should be leading the global response, we have instead taken a back seat and are witnessing the collapse of leadership both home and abroad. Rather than putting forth a real strategy, our leaders point fingers at China and the World Health Organization, are absent from critical global meetings, and refuse to be straight with Congress and the American people on the public health threat, all the while infections and deaths surge across the country. Of course, as we all know, the strength of our diplomacy starts and ends with the strength of our diplomatic corps. <coughs> Earlier this week, I released a report, Diplomacy in Crisis, the Trump administration's decimation of the State Department. And I have a copy here, just in case you haven't seen it, and I'd ask unanimous consent to enter into the record, Mr. Chairman. Be entered. The report found a State Department at risk of catastrophic failure, with career diplomats describing a, quote, complete and utter disdain for their expertise, and even, quote, a contempt for career employees, many asking, quote, if their service is still valued. And even as President Trump refers to our diplomats as the, quote, deep State Department, you have stood at his shoulder and said nothing exemplified by your refusal to stand behind Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. The result is an exodus of expertise. 7% of the department's staff left in the first year and a half of the administration. And while I realize that you were not at the department during that time, the department has continued to suffer persistent vacancies without Senate-confirmed nominees. And in response, the administration repeatedly puts forth candidates who do not possess the qualifications the demeanor nor the temperament to serve in leadership positions and represent the American people abroad. When you send us qualified nominees, Mr. Secretary, we act. We have confirmed more than 190 nominees, and dozens have advanced quickly and without incidents. But you continuously send us nominees who have misled Congress, who have made offensive or racist statements, who have sexual harassment lawsuits and allegations against them, who have supported torture, and whose conduct would disqualify them from service in any other administration. The administration promised us, quote, the best people, the very best, terrific, tremendous. But Mr. Secretary, the best people don't seem to want to work for you. Finally, let me just touch on a few oversight issues, which I know you were passionate about as a former member of Congress. At your direction, the President recently removed the State Department's Inspector General, who was investigating, perhaps among other things, last year's emergency declaration of arms sales to Saudi Arabia, about which I, along with a bipartisan group of colleagues, raised serious concerns. Additionally, we have learned of allegations of you using your office to promote your own personal domestic political agenda, hosting lavish dinners at the department, and creating at least the appearance of using taxpayer resources to impress high-profile political donors. While this hearing is ostensibly uh, convened for the President's FY21 budget request, you and I and everybody on this dais knows that the President's wish to completely gut our international affairs budget by a shocking 34% is dead on arrival. That said, I have to say, I must uh, say I'm, I'm tempted 
to provide you with a budget request and see how you could actually operate under it. Even if this budget hearing were not months after the fact and far too late in the legislative process, let me just say it's fundamentally misguided and unsuited to the needs of safeguarding our nation's security. Now, I recognize you'll take issue with much of what I've said, Mr. Secretary, but facts are a stubborn thing. When you entered office, I offered a hand to work with you in areas where we could have built real agendas with bipartisan political buy-in. Venezuela, Iran, Russia, China, and indeed, I'm disappointed. But as I look at your tenure in office and at the track record of this administration, I'm disappointed that instead of making America first among the nations of the world, you have instead relinquished our leadership to the applause and approval of China and Russia. That makes America last. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, as we proceed, uh, for, first let me say, obviously, those views are the views of Senator Menendez uh, individually, not those of this chairman or the majority of this committee. Um, we, uh, for the members of this committee, we have an 1130 hard stop that will give us time for a, uh, a round of questions. I'm going to take a short break about halfway through. Uh, as usual, uh, we would uh, stick with what has been a longstanding commitment of this committee for civility. And uh, when uh, the witness is asked a question, we're going to give the witness a full opportunity to answer that question and not interrupt his answer simply because he's doing so well at answering the question. And I will, uh, I will enforce that strictly. Uh, with Mr. that, Secretary Pompeo, the floor Mr. is Chairman, yours. if I am at parliamentary inquiry, you just discussed the procedural process. Um, if we're going to have answers that are filibusters, uh, I, I don't expect that we're going to allow that either. Yeah. Uh, Senator Menendez, uh, I'll run the committee. Uh, and I'll do it uh, as I've indicated. We're not going to interrupt uh, answers from the uh, from the uh, witness. With that, Secretary Pompeo. Uh, thank you, Chairman Resch, Ranking Member Menendez. I have a, a full statement uh, in the interest of of time. I'll just read the first uh, approximately one third of that. If I could uh, get your agreement to put the rest of the statement on the record, I'd appreciate that. We'll do that, Mr. Secretary. Thank you very much. Uh, today, I'm here to uh, present the. Uh, and testify about the President's 2021 budget. It requests nearly $41 billion for the State Department and USAID, enabling both agencies to protect U.S. citizens, increase American prosperity, and advance the development of democratic societies. And critically, it reflects a commitment to the strategic, efficient use of resources to provide better results for the American people. That's the top-line analysis, but I want to make a broader point uh, that our diplomatic expenditures reflect America's values. Two weeks ago in Philadelphia, I unveiled the report of the State Department's Commission on Unalienable Rights. My message that day was simple. The Trump administration places our founding principles at the very core of American diplomacy. I want to talk about how we've done that in, in three areas. Uh, first, securing the American people's freedoms against authoritarian threats, securing American lives during the pandemic, and helping friends across the world secure those very unalienable rights on authoritarian threats. We've evaluated the world with the same realism that the American founders did. We see the Islamic Republic of Iran for what it is, an aggressor, not a victim. We've gone full bore on our maximum pressure campaign since May of 2018. We've slashed the vital oil revenues the regime uses for terrorism and illegal nuclear activities by 90%. We've rallied nations to our side through diplomacy, witnessed the designations of Hezbollah from European and South American countries. 
and we've bolstered our military readiness vis-a-vis -vis Tehran. There's more work to do. The Security Council must renew the UN arms embargo against Iran before it expires on October 18th. Iran already mines ships in the Straits of Hormuz, launches missiles at Saudi oil facilities, and ships arms to the Houthis. Should the Security Council fail to act, Iran will have a freer hand to sow destruction across the Middle East and indeed the world. Russia, too, is a destabilizing authoritarian force in Ukraine, in Libya, in Syria, and inside of Western democracies. This administration has acted to protect our interests and our friends. We've issued the Crimea Declaration. We've supplied Ukraine with lethal military hardware. We've sanctioned more than 360 Russian targets for everything from human rights abuses to supporting the murderous Assad regime to operating mercenaries and proxy forces around the world. And the State Department's FY 2021 request for the Global Engagement Center is $138 million, more than double its current level. We won't tolerate disinformation and other propaganda directed by the Kremlin or any of our other adversaries. Further on Russia, two weeks ago, the State Department removed Nord Stream 2's exemption under CATSA. And in December, the administration's swift implementation of PISA, an important bipartisan endeavor, effectively halted construction of the pipeline. We're the toughest administration ever on Russia. Most importantly, on China. We see the Chinese Communist Party also for what it is, the central threat of our times. Our vigorous diplomacy has helped lead an international awakening to the threat of the CCP. Senators, the tide's turning. 30-plus countries and territories have become 5G clean countries, banning untrusted vendors from their networks. When we talked about this some year ago, the number was in the single digits. In our hemisphere, Canada has stood firm against the Chinese Communist Party's hostage-taking. Its three major telecom carriers have also banned untrusted vendors. Belize and Haiti have denounced Beijing's national security law targeting Hong Kong. Denmark has rejected the CCP's attempted censorship of Danish newspapers. Sweden has closed its Confucius Institutes. Lithuanian intelligence services have identified China as a, political a potential threat for the first time. And in the region, in the Indo-Pacific, Australia declares China's South China Sea claims unlawful and illegitimate, as have we. And we're proud to have stepped up maritime maneuvers in that body of water alongside our friends from Australia and Japan and the United Kingdom. India has banned 106 Chinese applications that threatened its citizens' privacy and security. Our diplomatic efforts are working and momentum is building to mitigate the threats that the Chinese Communist Party presents. All 10 ASEAN nations have insisted that the South China Sea disputes must be settled on the basis of international law, including UNCLOS. Japan led the G7's condemnation of China's national security law targeting Hong Kong. The EU condemned the law too and also declared China a systemic rival just last year. And we've agreed to start a dialogue channel focused solely on China at the EU's request. At NATO, Secretary General Stoltenberg has called to make China a greater part of that alliance's focus as well. We led a multilateral effort to ensure that the United Nations World Intellectual Property Organization elected a director from a country that actually gave a darn about intellectual property rights. And our quad, the United States, Australia, India, and Japan, has been reinvigorated. We've worked hard at this. Our diplomats have done wonderful work. I'm very proud of the progress we are making. In addition to these multilateral efforts, the Department of Justice is cracking down on Chinese IP, IP threats. We've sanctioned Chinese leaders for their brutality 
brutality in Xinjiang, imposed export controls on companies that support it, and warned U.S. businesses against using slave labor in their supply chains. We've terminated special treatment agreements with Hong Kong in response to the CCP's actions to deny freedom to the people of Hong Kong, and we closed our consulate in Houston because it was a den of spies. Our budget reflects this efforts, the reality on the ground. We requested nearly $1.5 billion for foreign assistance to the Indo-Pacific region, a 20% increase from the 2020 request. We want that part of the world to be free and open and prosperous. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I'll, I'll close uh, and happy to take questions. Thank you, uh, Mr. Secretary. I appreciate that. Uh, we are going to do a questioning on a seniority basis uh, since it is the Secretary at Cabinet level uh, as opposed to the usual uh, first come rule. And uh, again, I'd ask each member to uh, be respectful of other members and stick to the uh, uh, five minutes you're allotted. And uh, once uh, we've gone around, we'll make a determination of where we're going to go from that. From there, with that, uh, Senator Menendez. Mr. Chairman, I see seven minutes on the clock. Is that what's going to be, or is it? Uh, we, I intended to do. Uh, I intended to do a five. We can do. Let's let's do a seven because that will just about take up the time. But we're going to have to stick right to that seven because uh, otherwise people aren't going to get a chance. So thank you. Mr. We'll do seven. Mr. Secretary, as I outlined in my opening statement, Vladimir Putin's investment in Donald Trump prior to the 2016 election clearly continues to pay off handsomely. Withdrawing troops from Germany. Troops in Germany is not about Germany. Troops in Germany is about our own national security interests. Redirecting funds from the European Deterrence Initiative. That's an initiative, as you well know, to deter Russia, to pay for the president's ineffective border wall, and refusing to follow the law and impose meaningful sanctions under CATSA. But perhaps most shockingly, while we have all known for some time that Russia has provided support to the Taliban, both arms and resources, imposing bounties on the heads of US service members is an outrageous escalation. President Trump astonishingly admitted in an interview on Tuesday that he's never raised the issue with Mr. Putin, even though he's spoken to him about seven times this year alone. Mr. Secretary, do you consider how you would react to such behavior from a Democratic president if you were sitting in your old house seat? Would you be okay with a president who abandoned our troops by not even raising this with the Kremlin? Mr. Chairman, you, you a ranking member, uh, you've identified four uh, items where you're concerned about our actions with respect to Russia. I'd like to address each of them. Uh, that's what I think about a second. I only ask one question. Yes, I, I don't spend much time thinking about what I would have done were I still in the House of Representatives. I'm very focused on my job as Secretary of State today. Would you be okay? All right, let me ask you this. Have you raised concerns with Russia and its Foreign Minister Lavrov with respect to Russia reportedly placing bounties on the heads of service members in Afghanistan? Well, I want to be very careful about what's uh, public record and what's intelligence-based, but yes. Um, I can assure you and the American people that each time I've spoken with Foreign Minister Lavrov, I've raised all of the issues that put any American interest at risk, whether that's our soldiers on the ground in Syria, soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, the activities that are taking place in Libya, uh, the actions in Ukraine, e each and every one of these that uh, potentially threaten American interests are things that I raised 
in my conversations with Foreign Minister Lavrov, and I speak with him with some frequency. I appreciate that answer. I ask you specifically, have you raised concerns? This is in the public sphere. I'm not that, talking about classified, it's not classified senator. Have you raised, there are public reports, very well documented, that the Russians were supposedly paying bounties to kill our service members. Have you raised that issue with Foreign Minister Lavrov? Senator, I'm going to be more careful than you're being with respect to the intelligence. I'm, I'm, going, to I'm going to tell you that, make no mistake about it, the proper people have been aware of every single threat to our soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan, whether that was General Miller or my team at the embassy there in Kabul. Anytime there was a tactical threat on the lives or the health or the safety and security or our assets in place, we have raised this with our Russian counterparts, not only at my level, but Ambassador Sullivan and every one of our team that interacts with the Russians. We've made very clear our expectations. Let me turn to, to threaten us in Afghanistan. Let me turn to a few other questions. Uh, maybe you can answer these just simply yes or no. I think they're just factual in nature. Uh, did Turkey purchase the S-400 system from the Russian Federation? Yes. Did Turkey pay approximately $2.5 billion for that system? Senator, I'm, I'm not aware of the amount of the transaction. But they did pay them whatever the amount is, right? Senator, I, I believe that's correct. This, this I, I, although, Senator, let me just, I, I apologize. I am not certain that the uh, cash has been exchanged. Does the Turkish government currently have the S-400 in its possession? It, it has an S-400, yes. Did Turkey test the S-400 radar on an American-built F-16 in November of 2019, as was publicly reported? Senator, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not going to discuss classified information in this setting. Has the president raised the S-400 with uh, President Erdogan? Uh, I don't talk about things that the president speaks about with foreign counterparts. Uh, the, the, the White House is free to do that if they choose, but I, I'm not going so to. So let me ask you a simple question. You sent me a response just on Monday saying that you take your responsibilities under CATSA seriously and that you fully intend to comply with the law. Well, all of these elements clearly are in violation of CATSA. So uh, over uh, a year since all of these facts have attached, when will the administration follow the law and impose CATSA sanctions on Turkey? Senator, in response to the uh, Turkish government's uh, acquisition of the S-400, we've taken significant actions uh, that have had a real impact on Turkey. We've pulled out a very significant weapons program that they were building significant pieces of inside of Turkey, the F-35 program. And we continue to evaluate uh, how to apply sanctions in order to achieve our end objective. Our end objective isn't uh, to punish. It's to ensure that uh, our NATO partner uh, acts in a way that's consistent with American national security and the security of our NATO partners as well. Our diplomats, Ambassador Satterfield on the ground, are working diligently. I, I had a very pointed question. I know that you're a Harvard graduate, West Point graduate. You know what my question was. Uh, it's not about everything else. It's about CATSA. Uh, but uh, you've decided not to answer that. So let me go to the final question. Uh, you had the Inspector General uh, of the State Department, Mr. Linick, uh, ultimately fired. Is that correct? Uh, I, I recommended to the president that he be terminated, yes. And you recommended it to the president that he be terminated. Why? Because he was conducting investigations that may affect you? Senator, at the time I made the recommendation to the president, I was unaware of any of the investigations that were ongoing that he had ongoing at the time, with one exception. I was aware of an investigation that he had asked me to 
provide testimony. I provided that testimony. Other than that, I was unaware of any investigation. It's not remotely the reason. Uh, was uh, your undersecretary, Mr. Bulatel, aware, and didn't he speak to you about it? He did not speak to me about it. Well, you said that the IG was not performing in the way he should have uh, because he wasn't following, in essence, what you wanted to. Well, inspector generals aren't supposed to follow what the department head wants to. They're supposed to be independent in pursuit of their mission. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Johnson. Uh, Mr. Secretary, welcome. Thank you for your service. Um, I think we can all acknowledge the world's a complex and, and messy place. And as the ranking member said, you know, facts are stu stubborn things and administrations have track records. Uh, just a quick review, you, you came into office, President Trump came into office uh, with a big mess, a lot of messes that you had to clean up. Uh, let me just quick go through them. Libya, uh, a failed state because of President uh, Obama's actions. Assyria had gone from a few hundred dead over his administration to basically a genocide, about a half a million people killed in Syria. Uh, what I consider is one of the historic blunders in foreign policy, the removal of troops from, from Iraq allowed ISIS to rise from the thoroughly defeated ashes of uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, Crimea had been illegally annexed, Eastern Ukraine uh, invaded. And President Obama did not provide the lethal defensive weaponry on a unanimous basis that Congress authorized him to do. Uh, North Korea was rampantly testing missiles and uh, their nuclear weapons. Iran, through that agreement, it changed their behavior for the worst. It emboldened them. And of course, illegal immigration, primarily in the form of uh, family units, exploiting laws that weren't being enforced in this country, was exploding. So President Trump came into office with a lot of foreign policy messes. Uh, by the way, last time I looked, under this administration, we've started no new wars. Uh, we've destroyed the physical caliphate of ISIS. Uh, General Soleimani, uh, el-Baghdadi are off the field. Uh, President Trump actually provided those lethal defensive weaponry, the javelins, which helped stabilize the situation in Iran. And Quite honestly, we've done a pretty good job at reducing that out of control uh, illegal immigration from the southern border by diplomacy with Guatemala is one of, the, one of the things that occurred there. So I think we have to put those track records and compare them and talk honestly about these things. Now, the ranking member has been uh, pretty brutal uh, regarding the firing of Inspector General Linick. Uh, I was copied on a letter that uh, Under Secretary of Management Bulatalo uh, wrote to uh, Mr. Horowitz. I've read it. Uh, it's somewhat complex. I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about what happened. And by the way, I'm very sensitive to inspector generals tr or trying to push inspector generals to investigate the leaks of these departments. Um, there were 126 leaks having to do with national security in the first 125 days of this administration. Uh, that needs to be investigated. And I'm not... If you could describe the leaks that you were concerned about and exactly how Inspector General uh, Linick didn't handle that the way you thought it should be handled. Sure. Uh, so thank you, Senator Johnson. Uh, let, let me just say I, I value Inspector General as well. I had a great relationship with the Inspector General at the CAA when I was there. He did his job. He took care of the team. He was critical of the agency when we got it wrong. I, I, know, what a, I know what a good IG can do. Uh, Inspector General Linick wasn't that. Uh, the incident you're referring to is that we had a, a very sensitive uh, Inspector General report. Uh, when the final draft was prepared, uh, it leaked. 
the Politico reporter, I think, said it came from two people close to the investigation. At that point, was basically the IG's office and a couple of others that actually knew about it and the full report, which had a real impact on senior State Department officials' lives. Uh, when we uh, confronted the inspector general, he was defensive. Uh, we then asked him to undertake a process. He ignored that request to inspect, to have a, a separate IG come and investigate. Uh, it's, it's pretty complicated, but suffice it to say, uh, he, he didn't comply with the instructions about how we felt that leak needed to be investigated so that we could have an independent investigator do it. And then he wasn't candid about that process either. He, he didn't act with integrity throughout that process in a way that uh, inspector generals have to be counted on to behave. Well, I had my own issues with Inspector General Linick. I won't go into those. Uh, right now, I'm being falsely, Senator Grassley and I are being falsely accused of uh, peddling in Russian disinformation uh, because of uh, acting uh, Director of National Intelligence Grinnell's efforts to declassify four footnotes in the Michael Horowitz's IG report. We now know that the Russian disinformation that was involved in the 2016 campaign was bought and paid for by the DNC, the Clinton campaign was in, contained in the Steele dossier. That, that, that is the truth. That is the Russian disinformation. I have heard no outrage on the part of our Democratic colleagues about that Russian disinformation. But we are still under, undergoing our investigation, and we're trying to seek documents out of the State Department involved in that Steele dossier. And let me just ask you a specific question. In October 2016, former State Department official Jonathan Weiner arranged for Christopher Steele to provide other State Department officials the anti-Trump dossier he compiled for the DNC in the Clinton campaign. That same month, Mr. Weiner gave Mr. Steele information collected by Clinton supporters, which Mr. Steele then passed on to the FBI. This conduct raises serious concerns under the Hatch Act, Federal Records Act, and other department policies. Although, although then IG Linick acknowledged conducting a review of this conduct, he has not published any of his findings and admitted that the OIG did not interview any of the key players. Are you aware of these issues and can you commit to the, to the to commit that the department will be responsive to our request from Senator Grassley and myself? We need these documents. Senator, we'll, we'll do our best to be responsive. We, we understand the requests, we're working through it. Uh, and yes, I'm, I'm familiar with the information that you uh, set forth there with respect to the behavior that took place in October of 2016 in the State Department. Were, were there any other specific incidents that caused you to ask for the removal of Inspector General Linick? Yes, there were There were several. Look, at the end, it's about the core mission, accomplishing the core function. Uh, we One of the central functions to make sure that we can represent to you all that the uh, financial statement for the State Department is accurate and full. We have an audit team to do that. Uh, Inspector General Lennox screwed that up. I'll read from the investigative report. It said, oversight by the OIG was demonstrably ineffective, ultimately placing the department's information as well as the reputation, human capital, and operations at considerable and unnecessary risk. That's an enormous failure for one of the most important tasks that the IG's office does, conduct the audit of the State Department's books. Uh, there, there's a handful of others. Uh, he, he, he refused to take care of his team in important ways. Uh, he, there were 10% fewer audits of our posts around the world. One of the most important functions, aside from the audit, is to travel around to posts and conduct audits to make sure that they're, they're conducting business appropriately. We were down about 10%. And I must tell you, morale inside the IG's office, uh, of all, we have 38 assistant secretary level, level bureaus. Uh, the IG's office was uh, the worst survey results of any of those 38. He, he didn't take care of his people either. He also did not investigate the improper use of personal emails in the State Department, which was rampant under the previous administration. Thank uh, you, Senator thank you. Johnson.
Senator Curtin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, thank you for being here. Yes, sir. Uh, America's strength is in our values. We are the global leader for democratic values. We have been so recognized. Uh, and we've worked with the international community of, as the leader of the free world with other countries that share our values. And uh, we led in that, and one of the, the best examples was the passage of the Magnitsky sanctions, the global Magnitsky, which was not just bipartisan, it was pr pretty much universal here in supporting, uh, promoting U.S. values. I was glad to work with the late Senator McCain on the passage of that legislation. And now Canada, Europe, Australia are all following our leadership to enforce universally recognized democratic values. So when the United States isolates itself from our traditional allies, it affects our credibility as a global leader of the free world in promoting democratic values. So when we pulled out of the climate agreement, when we isolated ourselves on Iran, uh, when our trade policies have been more bilateral rather than working with other countries in order to try to advance uh, our causes against non-market economies or government-controlled economies. All that affects America's credibility. So when I look at your budget, I see a decline of 35% in democracy funds. To me, I don't understand that cut. 35% if we're going to be the leader in democratic values. But then I was pleased to hear you mention as the first order of your, your remarks today, human rights and values, American values. But I was disappointed that you used the Commission on Inalienable Rights as the example. And I say that because in my conversations with human rights advocates, not just here, but globally, they look at the United States trying to promote a political agenda on rights rather than working with the international community, the free world, on democratic principles of human rights. So tell me how this commission has engaged the activists globally that are fighting every day for human rights when it is very much tied towards a particular political view rather than a universal view on human rights. Senator, I appreciate the answer to talk a little bit about the commission and, and the objective I set out now just over a year ago with respect to it. I'd urge everyone to, to take a look at it and read it. I think they did phenomenal work. Uh, I don't agree with everything that's in there. I don't think any of the 10 members that came from broad religious backgrounds, broad political backgrounds, I don't think any of the 10 of them agree with just everything in there. Um, but what it set out to do was take on what is an enormous crisis in the 20th century's human rights project. We're in a really bad place all around the world. And it was my view as I watched the State Department, our, department, our DRL, all the folks who work on this who are great and amazing people I, I watched as they, they were unmoored. They didn't have a founding. And so I wanted to go back and talk about how do we moor American foreign policy and American human rights policy in the traditions of the United States. And so that's what the commission was asked to do. Well, well, well I guess what I don't understand is what were you trying, what was the problem that you're trying to solve? Yes, there's the, been, there's the, been a great deal of debate yes. in establishing universal values of human rights, yes. which has been the core for democratic states. And now all of a sudden we're picking winners and losers, but it looks like it's done on a political basis. Let me move to, to a second subject, if I might, on arms sales. Uh, we have a, a proud tradition of making sure that when we supply arms to other countries that they're not used against our human rights values. And we've seen in recent years that arms 
provided by the United States has ended up in the hands of actors that we do not want to see get those arms. What oversight are you deploying to make sure that arms that we make available to other countries are used for the intended purpose and do not end up in the wrong, for the wrong use? Senator, we have an elaborate uh, process uh, to do our best to verify that that doesn't happen. It's not that we don't that we don't have escapes, that there aren't failures. It's certainly the case that's uh, that's been true for an awfully long time. But we have an elaborate process to to validate and verify. Uh, we require representations. We do verification. We do inspections. We have big teams in our multi, in multiple departments that have responsibility for doing their best to ensure that American weapon systems are used for their intended purpose when we sell them or provide them to our partners and allies around the world. Let me make this offer. I think this committee can help you in that regards. And the, the, the jurisdictional battle between defense and state sometimes uh, presents yeah. challenges. States has the principal role for a good reason. There's some legislation that I've authored that would help in that regard. I would hope that you would engage us to give you the tools you need to take on it sometimes. The, the military aspects of the Defense Department that may not be as sensitive to these values. That's Senator, just I, Senator, I appreciate that very much. I do think the State Department is the proper place to lodge the primary responsibility for that activity. So I, I welcome your efforts there. Uh, the GAO recently issued a report that I had requested uh, in regards to diversity. Uh, and the report's titled, State Department Additional Steps Are Needed to Identify Potential Barriers to Diversity. And they point out that from the period from 2002, well before your time, to 2018, we've seen a decline of minorities uh, in uh, positions within the State Department, and it's particularly pronounced within the higher ranks. What steps are you taking to implement the GAO concerns? So, Senator, I've seen that GAO report. I've seen the internal work we've done. I, I would characterize it over the last, that you were talking about from 2002, over the last decade roughly as flat. That, that's not good enough. Uh, that, that's multiple parties. This is not partisan at all. We want, want to get this right. Uh, we've, we've undertaken a number of things. We have about a third uh, today of our members who are minorities. Excuse me, about 44% of them are women. Uh, we've developed the Pickering-Wrangle program to bring more people in. We had double the applications this year. We have a big team that works on diversity and inclusion. And we're almost finished uh, with a major study that was begun now, I think, 13 months ago, run by Carol Perez, our DGHR, to look at to look at what the failures. There's been a lot of money and effort on diversity and inclusion over this last decade. With, to your point, uh, relatively good outcomes for acquisition of new talented people, um, but less so at the senior levels. Trying to identify why why we haven't. Uh, I hope we could work together on that. Uh, last point, just a point on Western Hemisphere on the ranking. I would just urge you to evaluate working with us on the aid to the Northern Triangle to make sure that they have the help from the United States to deal with the economic issues, which takes away the pressure of migration from the Northern Triangle. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Secretary, for your service and being here today. Over the last several years on the Asia Subcommittee, uh, we've been working together on this committee to shape a new policy toward the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the region obviously is burgeoning in population, and promising commercial growth, and it's critical for global security and economic stability. But North Korea continues to seek nuclear weapons and to threaten its neighbors. China is, emerging, is an emerging global power that's intimidating its neighbors, brutally suppressing its own citizens and attempting to remake the world to order in its own image. In Burma, the military is committing grievous uh, human rights abuses against the minority Rohingya population. 
It's more important than ever that the United States maintains a presence in the Indo-Pacific region, reaffirms alliances, encourages economic cooperation, and promotes human rights and the rule of law. The administration and Congress must be united on implementing a long-term strategy that will benefit American national security interests, promote American businesses and create jobs through trade promotion and opportunities, and project American values of respect for the human rights and freedom in the Indo-Pacific region. This includes countering China's growing militarization of the South China Seas and increasing malign influence in Southeast Asia, as well as ensuring that complete, verified, and irreversible denuclearization is achieved on the Korean Peninsula, Peninsula as codified in U.S. law. The United States has always been and will always remain a Pacific power, and legislation like my Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, ensures that the U.S. government will speak with one voice to reassure our allies and to deter our adversaries in the Indo-Pacific region. In 2018, the Asia Subcommittee held a three-part hearing series. Uh, we talked about uh, democracy, human rights, and rule of law. Uh, we found that mass concentration camps for Uyghur Muslims necessitated a serious response from the U.S. and the international community, that crackdowns in the Tibet Autonomous Region are intensifying, while Beijing continues to refuse uh, negotiations with the Central Tibetan Administration, that human rights defenders in China are routinely jailed and tortured. I was obviously pleased to see that several Chinese officials were sanctioned for abuses against Uyghurs, and even in the 11 Chinese entities implicated in similar abuses were added to the Commerce Department's entity list. But what is the administration doing to address uh, more further uh, global Magnitsky sanctions and other um, uh, remedies for these abuses? So, Senator Gardner, uh, thanks. And we're f I'm familiar with ARIA. It's, it's great work, and I want to thank uh, this committee and, and, frankly, the broader group of senators for the bipartisan legislation that we had with respect to the Uyghurs and respect to Hong Kong democracy as well. It's very powerful when I can talk to my counterparts around the world and say that I have not only the support of Congress, but bipartisan, <coughs> almost unanimous support on our policy with respect to securing freedom against the threats that the Chinese Communist Party is presenting. Uh, as for what we'll continue to do uh, in Western China with respect to uh, the uh, horrific human rights violations that are taking place against the ethnic minorities there, I don't want to get in front of the final decisions, but you can rest assured that there are uh, further actions, including further actions with respect to human rights violations that the Department of State and the Department of Treasury are working to complete. Uh, Mr. Secretary, yesterday, I don't know if you had a chance to see some of the hearing in the House of Representatives regarding some of the tech companies uh, operating in the United States. And uh, I'll read you some of the comments they made when asked whether or not China uh, is uh, stealing information uh, from them. Uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook said he had no personal knowledge about Chinese technology theft. Um, Jeff Bezos has no uh, firsthand experience beyond knockoff products. Uh, Google CEO has said that uh, they didn't have any experience later, uh, had clarified that remark. Can you talk a little bit about tech and China and what you see, what's happening? Is, is it true that there's no Chinese technology theft of U.S. companies? Well, they need to get out more. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a long history, decades-long history, of Chinese intellectual property threat, including against uh, technologies. And I hear it. Um, it's sometimes the case you hear it privately uh, because there's continued threats made against their businesses that are operating not only in China, uh, but threats the, to businesses that are, that are actually working in other parts of Asia and Southeast Asia as well. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is... Uh, completely willing to bully and to threaten 
to get companies to behave. Do, do you work with these tech companies at State Department on intellectual property theft, cyber attack, those kinds of things? We do. Uh, we, we work closely with them. And on, on, the side of, on the side of protecting cyber, we've actually had some good work where we've worked alongside each other on important projects where we have reduced risk. And so I, I thank them for that. But, but the idea that anyone in, in the tech space could not know of what the Chinese Communist Party is attempting to steal and the cyber attacks they're making seems incredulous. In March of this year, uh, as related to some Chinese misinformation and uh, the spread, dissemination of misinformation when it came to uh, uh, the COVID-19 uh, propaganda China was spreading, I suggested the National Security Council set up a task force at the White House to counter that uh, disinformation. Uh, are the tech companies doing enough to combat Chinese uh, disinformation? No, there, there's always more that they can do. There's more we can do as well. On that particular front, I must say, I actually think the world mounted a very effective counter campaign against the Chinese disinformation. As, I, as I've traveled and as I've spoken to my counterparts, I think the world understands that this virus emanated from China, from Wuhan in particular, and I think the world understands that the Chinese Communist Party showed up with PPE that didn't work and covered up what they knew about that when they could have prevented this spread. So I think I think the Chinese efforts at disinformation there actually failed in this case. The uh, Taiwan situation, I wanted to just ask a question about uh, bilateral trade agreements and opportunities for Taiwan. Yesterday I sent a letter to uh, U.S. Trade Representative uh, Lighthizer, Ambassador Lighthizer, asking for the U.S. to begin engaging in a, a bilateral trade agreement with uh, Taiwan. Can you talk a little bit about the administration's pursuit of such an agreement? Senator Gardner, I'd prefer to leave that to Ambassador Lighthouser to talk about that. We're, we're aware that there's great interest in this. Uh, the State Department will have its part in that. Um, but our, our primary work with respect to Taiwan is uh, is different from the, the trade piece of this. We've, we've been diligent about making sure that we honor the commitments that we have made to the people of Taiwan, including uh, approving arms sales that are important so that the Taiwanese can engage in the activities that they need to do so they can protect their democracy. And the administration's goal of complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula remains. It does. Thank you. Sure. <clears throat> thank you, Senator Gardner. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here today. Were you involved in the decision to withdraw troops from Germany? Yes. According to Secretary Esper, 6,400 of those troops, so over half of those who will be removed from Germany, will be coming back to the United States. They're not going to be going to um, parts of Europe to deter Russia, to parts of Asia to deter China. In fact, the only country that has publicly supported the removal of U.S. troops from Germany to date has been Russia. So can you share with us whether um, the impact of this decision on our efforts to counter China and Russia was taken into account, and um, was there any sort of strategic assessment done to support this decision? Senator Shaheen, thanks uh, for the question. Uh, of course there was, and, and we were very involved at the uh, strategic level. Obviously, uh, the troop-level decisions and the like are primarily the Department of Defense and the President's role. Uh, you, you characterized the folks who were coming back to the United States um, as somehow being off the off the field, that's not the case. Uh, these units will participate in rotational activity. They'll be forward deployed. Uh, they won't be stationed or garrisoned. Uh, but make no mistake about it, they will be fully available uh, to ensure that we can properly uh, uh, prosecute the challenges we have from the uh, global powers. Well, uh, Mr. Or, Secretary, or, 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 I, I I assume that all of our troops who are 
yes. in the United States are available to be forward deployed. Now, I recognize that there are certain training that needs to be part of them before they are deployed, but but I guess I, I don't understand and was the effect of diplomatically alienating Germany, who is the largest and wealthiest country in the EU, who has been a historic strategic ally, was that also taken into consideration? Ma'am, you know, this is personal for me. I, I, I fought on the border of East Germany. When I was a young soldier, I was stationed Yes, I'm there. aware of that. Yeah. And your unit it, is it, coming was, back to the United I, States. I, I, I know it. It had been back once before to Fort Polk, and then I went back to Germany. Uh, when I was there, there were six figures of soldiers there. Uh, Germany is no longer a frontline state. Uh, as, for, as for our strategic effort, General Secretary Stoltenberg, NATO commander, uh, was very much in the process of helping us think this through. I saw comments out of Russia this morning that are different than you described, that viewed the actions that we took as threatening because we will have uh, soldiers that are deployed closer to the Russian border. Uh, yes, we, we, this was a thoughtful process. Uh, the military piece of this run out of the Pentagon largely, uh, but State Department was fully involved in the strategic pieces of this. And I am very confident that our mission uh, to deter Russia, the NATO mission to deter Russia, we are still fully capable of executing. The, the precise number was 200,000 early, about 100 and some thousand when I was there. Uh, conditions have changed around the world and our forces need to be repositioned to appropriately confront today's challenges. Well, I, I would just read from a report in Bloomberg that quotes um, Dmitry Peskov, who was the press secretary for uh, Vladimir Putin, who says that, and I quote, the fewer American soldiers on the European continent, the calmer it is in Europe, Peskov said, answering a question on planned U.S. troop reductions in Germany. Um, that doesn't sound to me like they think that this increases the threat from Russia. But I, I'd like to go on to another um, issue because I want to follow up on the question that Secretary Menendez raised, or Senator Menendez raised, about um, the reports on bounties that Russia has put on our troops in Afghanistan by the Taliban. And I, I, there was a report last night that said that state officials have secretly warned Russia against bounties on our troops, against killing our troops. What more do you think we should be doing to address that, to prevent uh, the Taliban and Russia from trying to murder our troops in Afghanistan? So uh, there, there are many things, and we've been engaged in them consistently. Uh, there's intelligence collection so that if it happens, we can identify it, stop it, make sure that the actual tactical event doesn't take place. Uh, that's the task of not, not only DOD intelligence services, but um, our, our broader intelligence services. Our diplomats, too, make very clear our expectations and set a set of red lines. And then we have our larger Afghanistan policy. It's not just Russia that has been underwriting the Taliban for all these years. I know there's an awful lot of focus on that in this town. Um, but let me tell you, at the State Department, Department of Defense, we're worried about Iranian support to the Taliban. We're worried about Gulf money coming to the Taliban. We are working I totally agree with that. We are working diligently against every one of those threats, both diplomatically and from a security perspective, to protect our soldiers. And then finally, to protect our soldiers further, we've been working diplomatically to get peace and reconciliation in Afghanistan. And we have a ceasefire that began at the start of Eid al-Hadha. We've now had a significant prisoner exchange. Since February 29th, the agreement entered into, we haven't had a single attack against an American soldier. This is the finest in American diplomacy, and I'm incredibly proud 
of what my team has done, my State Department team has done to protect American soldiers. Um, so do you think it would be helpful for President Trump to talk to Vladimir Putin and tell him that he needs to back off in terms of paying the Taliban to kill American troops? I always leave to the president what he wants to say to other leaders. I don't think there's any doubt in the mind of every Russian leader, including Vladimir Putin, about the expectations of the United States of America not to kill Americans. And I can promise you that the 300 Russians who were in Syria and who, who took action that threatened America, who are no longer on this planet, understand that too. When you were here um, last time, we talked about the potential for negotiations with the Taliban in Afghanistan. That was before an agreement was reached. And there was an exchange that you and I had about the role of Afghan women in any talks with the Taliban. And you said that Afghan women should fend for themselves. Well, we've seen the outcome of our reticence to support Afghan women. The agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban failed to mention the rights of Afghan women, and it contains no guarantees for their continued constitutional protection. Um, is the policy to have Afghan women fend for themselves consistent, do you believe, with the legal mandate for the U.S. to support them? and I quote, the meaningful inclusion of women in peace talks as directed by the Women, Peace, and Security Act that was signed into law by President Trump? Well, I'd have to go look and see what I said. Uh, no, we, we're doing our level best to make sure that we protect every Afghan, male and female, and I have seen the at least tentative composition of the Afghan negotiating team, and uh, I, I think you'll be pleased with it. Um, well, I'm out of time, but the fin for themselves is an exact quote from your statement when you were before this committee. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, people always say actions speak louder than words. Do you think the specific action the United States of America took against General Soleimani sent a message to every country on this planet of what would happen to people who uh, targeted United States soldiers uh, on the battlefield? I do. Thank you. Senator uh, Romney. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. It's a pleasure to see you and appreciate you appearing before this committee. I'm, uh, I'm one of many who applauds your recent addresses with regards to China. Uh, in these, you have called out their predatory behavior, uh, economic, military, geopolitic, geopolitical, uh, and you note that we have to confront China with our friends and allies if we're going to be successful in diverting them from their course of predation. Um, it's a very welcome assessment, a very clear-eyed uh, evaluation of China's intent and their actions, and a, uh, a statement of what our mission must be with regards to China. It's also a welcome departure from the president's uh, uh, fawning praise of Xi Jinping and, and celebration of agreements that, that China hasn't honored. It's also, in my view, uh, inconsistent with actions that we've taken that have offended our allies at a time we need to be drawing them closer to us. Um, and one, of course, is the steel and, and aluminum tariffs uh, against our friends and allies that I thought were misplaced. Um, I would have rather focused our entire ammunition on, uh, on China. Uh, the other, of course, is most recently, is, as Senator Shaheen has just indicated, the withdrawal of troops from Germany, uh, and doing so while expressing a, 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 an intent to punish 
uh, Germany for the fact that they spend approximately one and a half percent of their GDP on their military as opposed to the two percent NATO target, even though they've indicated that they are on track to get to the two percent number. Uh, I have heard from highest levels of the German government that this is seen by them as an insult to Germany. And I can't imagine at a time when we need to be drawing in our friends and allies so that we can collectively confront China that we want to insult them. My my question is this, however, which is what what actions will the administration take to to bring our allies together in a way that's different than what we've done in the past? I mean, I I know that there's always lots of talk going on, and any administration can talk about all the things happening, but but what are we going to do that's distinct, that's different, that's dramatic to bring the... The, the nations that follow the rule of law together so that we can hopefully reach some kind of a, a common approach or common strategy in how we're going to deal with China economically, militarily, geopolitically, and then collectively confront them with the intent of dissuading them from pursuing the course that they're on. Uh, we obviously don't want to you know, uh, go to war economically, militarily, or otherwise, but we do want to dissuade them, and, and, and I think that can only happen when we are, and, and as you have pointed out, when we can do that with others. I, I would note something you, uh, uh, you said at the Nixon Library. You said, quote, maybe it's time for a new grouping of like-minded nations, a new alliance of democracies. And I think that's a good idea, but I'm interested in what, what actions of a new and dramatic nature are you considering or are you willing to take in order to accomplish the objective you described? Senator, it is absolutely the case that uh, the, to confront the Chinese Communist Party is going to take a, a global effort. Uh, that's absolutely true. That's why I talked about this idea, perhaps, of a, of a new alliance of democracies, what shape that would take. Uh, there's lots of discussion about. I had many conversations with friends in the region. Uh, step one, Senator, to be honest with you, has been to awaken the world to this threat for an awful long time, not just the United States, but the whole world saw that there were lucrative opportunities in China and that was, that was basically foreign policy. Sell as much as you can, uh, outsource uh, jobs, uh, build supply chains. And so um, I spent my first year and change traveling the world trying to raise awareness of the threat. Uh, so that, I, I think that's new and different. You may say it's not enough, um, but it wasn't happening before. Uh, and I, I went through the list of things that have begun to turn the tide. Uh, I, I will say uh, there are still nations who understand this threat but don't feel like they are empowered, that they're in a position where they can withstand the threats that come from the Chinese Communist Party. So we are working, our diplomats, trying to build out a set of relationships. And whether that's part of a formal organization or not, I, I, I'm not sure I know the answer to yet, but to convince them, to convince them that America is prepared to lead and pushing back against the Chinese Communist Party, and when they do, we will be there to support them. And so I could list you, we have some 26 lines of effort at the State Department, probably an equal amount at the Department of Defense, uh, all aimed centrally at building out this set of alliances, both in Southeast Asia and more broadly with our Five Eyes partners and with the Quad, uh, to build out a set of commitments that can robustly communicate to the Chinese Communist Party that enough you have to behave on the global stage. If you want to behave on the global stage, you've got to do it under a set of rules uh, that has created so much prosperity around the world. Uh, I, I, that may be unsatisfying, Senator Romney, but there's still, it's still a real work in progress to get everyone fully aligned. I, I mentioned the EU dialogue, very important. Uh, Foreign Minister Burrell, High Representative Burrell, uh, asked me if we would have a dialogue with them on China. That took a lot of effort 
to get 27 EU nations to say, yes, this is something we've got to confront, to identify as a systemic rival. Uh, there's lots of spade work that goes into what seems pretty simple, I suppose. I, I think it's the most important work uh, that, uh, that we will be doing as a, as a country and as an administration as we face this challenge. Uh, just a parenthetical comment that comes to mind as you're speaking, and, and that relates to uh, a discussion that was held earlier with regards to tech companies that Senator Johnson raised. I, I know there's great interest sometimes politically to go after some of the big tech companies, uh, Google, Amazon, and so forth, and Facebook, and, and berate them for their market power. And if they violate American antitrust laws, why, that's totally appropriate. But I would note that we're in a global competition, and, and China has been successful in driving a lot of Western companies out of business. They've not been successful in driving companies like these out of business. These are thriving and succeeding. And the last thing we ought to be doing is trying to knock down businesses in the United States that are succeeding on a global stage. Uh, so we need to be careful uh, not to, to flex our muscle to berate uh, those, those entities that are successful and are beating uh, uh, China. I mean, Alibaba would like to replace Amazon. TikTok would like to replace uh, Instagram. Uh, so it's just an area of concern, and I hope that you're able to point these things out to other members of the administration who care deeply about that. Finally, were you surprised by the fact that, what was it, 57 countries supported China, 53 countries, supported China's crackdown on, on Hong Kong. Did that shock you as it did me? I, I was surprised and dismayed. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Senator Romney. Uh, Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member, uh, for holding this important hearing today. And uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, well, let me just start with two specific issues, if I can, that I think uh, are important. I. Um, want to uh, associate myself with a number of other areas that have been explored, but um, let me touch on these two. I'm working with members of this committee uh, and your department um, to resolve terrorism-related claims against Sudan, which is in the middle of a critical democratic uh, transition, to provide justice and compensation for over 700 terror victims and their family members, uh, and to move our bilateral relationship forward after 30 years under the brutal dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir. Um, I just want to urge you and the administration to do everything you can to support Prime Minister Hamdak uh, and to make sure that uh, we seize this opportunity um, to bring real justice to the victims and their American families and foreign nationals involved and to build a new democratic partner in the region. Have you personally engaged on this issue and can you commit to working transparently with Congress as we um, try to find a solution urgently? Senator Cruz, thank you for your work. This is, this is really important. We've proposed that there's a legal peace resolution that would be in legislation that will be before Congress here in the very, very near term. Uh, we think it's the appropriate time to both bring justice to those from the 1998 bombings uh, and get a real opportunity for Prime Minister Hamdrick. I've, I've talked to him a handful of times. I've talked to other of uh, the leaders there in Sudan. Uh, th this is an opportunity that doesn't come along often. We all know the history of Sudan and the tragedy there. Uh, there's a chance not only for a democracy to begun to be built out, um, but perhaps regional opportunities that could flow from that as well. And I think lifting the state sponsor of terrorism designation there, if we can get, um, if we can take care of the victims of those tragedies, it would be a good thing for American foreign policy. And I appreciate your assistance in that regard. We, we have a number of members of this committee with strong interests, and it's my hope that we can move in a way that respects those constituent interests and also makes progress uh, and doesn't miss this moment. Um, on the Global Fragility Act, it's legislation that was bipartisan um, that I led here with Senator Graham and President Trump signed into law last December. 
It requires a long-term whole of gov government strategy to address extremism and instability in fragile states. Now, the first deliverable uh, under this legislation, the Global Fragility Strategy, is due September 15th. Um, Congress really isn't looking for old wine and new bottles, uh, so we just urge you to look at the GFA as a, a tool to rethink our approach to these challenges and improve the way that state, AID, and DOD work together. Um, how are you using the tools Congress provided in the GFA to address the consequences of this pandemic on development, governance, security, um, and can you um, commit that you'll look hard at and resolve um, a, a technical issue on the creation of the Prevention and Stabilization Fund, uh, which was designed to replace and improve on the Rapid Response Fund in the statute? Senator Coons, uh, I'll get back to you on the, the last question that you asked. I'm, I'm familiar with it, but not enough to answer your question, but I'll get you an answer uh, briefly. Uh, you're right. I'm tracking the first deliverable. I, I will say I saw the first pass at this. Uh, you characterized it about right. It was uh, There wasn't much that was original in there, and I've asked the team to go back and uh, take a set of fresh looks to ask for outside views, but folks, folks on Capitol Hill, uh, people who are experts around the world, to, to see if we can't use this tool that you provided us on a bipartisan basis to actually deliver on the stated objectives of that law. It was an uh, important piece of legislation. And I don't want to. I don't want to miss the chance to develop the strategy that can then underpin all the actions we can take when once that strategy is done. It's not something we intend to put on the shelf and admire, but something we hope creates operational opportunities underneath that strategy. Thank you. Um, today is the funeral service for a friend and former colleague, Congressman John Lewis, um, and I was struck by a, a comment made by your former colleague, uh, former Secretary of Defense, General Mattis. Um, who wrote uh, following the weeks of protests after the unlawful murder of George Floyd. Um, General Mattis wrote, I've watched this week's unfolding events angry and appalled. The words equal justice under law are carved into the pediment of the Supreme Court, and that is what the protesters are rightly demanding. Um, do you agree with General Mattis? Um, and uh, I'm concerned about the general direction uh, of the most senior levels of the State Department. This has been raised before. I won't go through the GAO report. Um, but of 189 ambassadors representing us abroad, only three are African-American, four are Hispanic, um, and I recognize that diversity in, in, the, in the department has been a long-term challenge, but I'd be interested in hearing both. Um, do you agree with General Mattis's comments, and what are you personally doing to mentor the next crop of senior leaders and to diversify the seventh floor leadership team? Yeah, I actually think the seventh floor leadership team, my entire communications team, my undersecretary for management, my undersecretary for political affairs are all part of diversity groups. I'm, I'm proud of what our small team has done, but that doesn't that doesn't begin to accomplish what uh, we need to get done in the State Department to make sure we get this right. Um, by the way, it is diversity and inclusion that is broad-based. We need to make sure that we have uh, people from all across America with all viewpoints, every every idea from all across America. We've been very narrow in how we have recruited uh, from a certain set of institutions and certain universities, and we don't get a full spectrum of understandings of America or of the world if we are too narrow in how we think about diversity and inclusion. So uh, we're working hard at it. We've, we've built out a set of programs. Uh, your point about not having sufficient minority representation in our ambassadorial levels is absolutely true. Uh, as it was three days ago, the, a set of about 23 that will be coming to you shortly, we had more than half of them that were female. First time that's ever happened, uh, so we're, we're making progress, but I would agree that the rate of change is insufficient. 
How do you think our own failure to address structural uh, racial inequality impacts our diplomacy overseas and impacts our ability to advocate around human rights issues? Well, it's important that we get it right at home. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I would tell you uh, that we are a beacon for that around the world. I think, and I think you can see it in people who want to come to the United States of America because it's uh, the freest nation. It's a place that you have immigrants from all across the world that want to come here. And I, I'm a believer that people vote with their feet. Uh, they see America still as this greatest, most exceptional nation. We are not without flaws. Uh, but I think as our diplomats travel the world, they can be very proud of our progress along this. Mr. Secretary, I want to ask a last question about our election. Uh, President Trump has uh, just tweeted that we should delay it. I'm interested in whether you were um, able to vote by mail when you served abroad in the Army, whether you vote by mail um, in your home state of Kansas, uh, whether, like many of us who serve in Congress in both parties, you've availed yourself, as do virtually all of our diplomats and development professionals and armed forces members, of the opportunity to vote securely by mail. Um, have you done so? And do you have any concerns about the security of our election this November? Uh, Senator Coons, I, I believe I have voted by absentee ballot. I think while I was a soldier, and I also think when I was a member of Congress, I did a couple times uh, as well. Uh, the State Department has some role in making sure we have election security. It's not our primary focus. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave to others those who have that primary centered focus. But is there any reason for us to be concerned <clears throat> that those votes are fraudulent or somehow ineligible to be counted if cast by mail or by absentee ballot by our diplomats? And I, I must say, um, uh, having a, a small group of people vote by absentee ballot is very different than deciding that you're going to conduct a full in-mail balloting, uh, an in-mail balloting program. Those are two fundamentally different beasts. I'll leave to the professionals to identify the, the level of risk associated with that. Um, but I also know, and I saw this in my home state of Kansas, when you change the voting rules in close to an election, it's a difficult task. Thank you, Senator Coons. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Good morning, Mr. Secretary. Thank you for coming in and being here. I, I know election security is not your uh, area of expertise, but, but I think you can comment on what I'm about to ask. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of influence efforts on the part of the Chinese in Taiwan to, to shape Taiwanese policies, the policies of their government. I'm, I'm certain, as most people on this committee, I hope, are aware of the how they pressure political figures that they view are opposed uh, to their to their interests, and, and I think we've all witnessed, I think you'll confirm this worldwide, that China has engaged in efforts of disinformation, particularly, for example, about the coronavirus. Uh, I, I'm not asking you to comment specifically about uh, the, the, our country. I, I think I'm more than anything else asking, if does China ever decided they wanted to do those kinds of things to us, would you assess they have the capability uh, to, to conduct disinformation campaign to pressure American political figures, potentially even members of, of Congress, the way we've seen them do, Taiwan and Australia and in other places. If they decided they wanted to do that, this is second largest economy in the world, uh, uh, pretty significant capabilities. If, if they ever decided they wanted to come after us that way, they'd have the capability to do it, would they not? Senator, I'll, I'll, I'll take it the, if I, if I have just a second to respond to this, uh, they, they certainly have the capability. I, I've talked about this. Uh, the United Front, the Chinese United Front is working here in the United States today. Uh, they're, they're meeting with state legislators, they're meeting with governors, they're, they're running the, what, one of the things that was taking place out of the consulate in Houston were influence operations conducted by their diplomats. And this isn't, I all know, we have 
diplomats from all across the world who come to our offices as members of Congress and talk to us about policy. This is, this, what I'm talking about is fundamentally different from that. So they not only have the capability, but the intention of conducting influence operations in the United States. I think we're a pretty resilient nation. I'm confident that we'll push back against that. But the world needs to understand that when it's happening here in the United States, it's happening all across. It's happening in their countries, too. Well, I think one of the things that was interesting yesterday is the four CEOs of these tech companies appeared, uh, I believe, before a House committee yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. And they were asked a very simple question. Do you believe, they were asked, do they believe that China steals technology from U.S. firms? They, they were asked this question. I think there's pretty strong consensus across the board uh, in both parties and, and, and in the media and elsewhere that the answer to that question is yes. The CEO of Apple said they haven't experienced it. That was his answer. Uh, and the CEO of Google said, neither have we. And the CEO of Amazon says, oh, I've, I've read that. Uh, only the CEO of Facebook said, yes, absolutely. So Apple, Google, and Amazon answered that question by saying either they hadn't experienced it or they've read that somewhere but wouldn't comment further. Why would corporations such as this, some of whom, by the way, take it upon themselves to censor truth versus what's not true and what they believe some people should be saying and not others on the basis of what they judge to be true. Why would three of the four CEOs of the four largest tech companies headquartered in the United States be afraid to answer that question? Senator, I can, I, I can only speculate. I mean, it's, it's patently clear to anyone who's watching that the Chinese are engaged in uh, intense efforts at intellectual property threat, including to technology. Um, or would it be fair in your mind to speculate that uh, they try to influence mem people even in the business community? Absolutely. Hmm. Okay. Um, one more question. I think I know the answer to this as well. But would you agree with the belief, I think, again, that's pretty widespread, that China has systematically identified industries and technologies that they believe will be key to the 21st century? They actually wrote it, and made in China 2025. And they've undertaken a systematic effort to dominate these industries while destroying our capability. They've done it. That's what the IP theft is about, the forced transfer of technology, subsidies to their firms, blocking access to their markets. Um, I mean, let, let there, there is no doubt at this point that they have a very carefully crafted plan to dominate certain key industries for the 21st century and to wipe out not just our capabilities in those industries, but everybody else's. That's, that's a fair assessment. Yes, Senator Ruby, and they've not been covert about this, right? They've, they've spoken openly about uh, how they're approaching uh, their, their commercial interests. The only thing that they don't speak about is that rather than build these industries inside, uh, the tools that they use are fundamentally different than the way uh, Western democracies do, right? We train our people, we build our businesses, we invest capital in the market. Uh, they run state-sponsored enterprises. Uh, they steal intellectual property, uh, and then they en endeavor to undermine other companies that threaten and bully countries around the world into buying their products. My last question is unrelated to China uh, directly, but as you're well aware, there have been press reports, speculations, commentators and the like that have uh, made much about um, uh, you know, recent uh, you know, allegations. And, and in one case, uh, an interview the president gave in which they, they took from it that the president would be willing to engage in negotiations with Maduro and the Maduro regime in Venezuela. As you understand our policy, being in the position that you're in, could you envision as long as this administration is in office, we would ever negotiate with the Maduro regime for them to remain in power? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, 
there's, there's, there, our policy is not to negotiate for them for anything other than his, um, his departure from ruling that country. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next, uh, after the next question, we're going to take a 10 minute recess, but uh, right now, Senator Udall, the floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman and Secretary Pompeo. Appreciate your time and, and testimony today. I want to start with an important subject, uh, democracy promotion. Earlier this year, you called for free and fair elections in Venezuela and Nicaragua. If free and fair elections are held and the current occupants of power lose, the State Department then strongly encourages those leaders to step down from power. And I think that sort of thing is an important pillar of our foreign policy on a bipartisan basis, correct? Yes, sir. But uh, I am hearing growing concern in this country about whether we are going to set a good example in our November election. In a recent Fox News interview, Chris Wallace asked President Trump whether he would give a, quote, direct answer that you will accept the election, unquote, in November. In response, President Trump said, I have to see. No, I'm not going to just say yes. No, I'm, I'm not going to say no. I didn't say last time either. During a 2016 debate, he stated, I will tell you at the time, I will keep, I will I will keep you in suspense. And, uh, and he's also called voting by mail, as you know, one of the major ways Americans vote, especially in a pandemic. He said over and over again, the election's rigged if it's vote by mail. So Secretary Pompeo, if President Trump refuses to accept the upcoming November election due to his lack of faith in voting by mail, Will you respect the results of a certified election as the State Department typically does throughout the world? Senator, I, I'm not going to speculate. You had about 15 ifs in there. The, I, I, you, should, you should know. I have said repeatedly this committee, I will follow the rule of law, follow the Constitution. I've endeavored to do that in everything I've done, and I'll, I'll continue to do that every day. The... the um President has made this a legitimate question in Americans' minds through his own statements. Uh, former Pennsylvania Governor and Homeland Security Secretary Tom Ridge, a Republican, as you know, says, and I quote here, I think it's very sad and very disappointing that with almost five months to go, the president seems to want to try to delegitimize de the November 3rd election. It just seems to me that this may be an indication He's more worried about the outcome than he's worried about the fraud, end quote. Uh, this is a serious domestic and foreign policy question. We need to set a good example about the peaceful transition of power or else we undermine our entire foreign policy. Uh, George Kennan wrote in his long telegram that in order to counter the Soviet Union, uh, quote, much depends on the health and vigor of our own society. I think that is just as true today about Russia, China, Venezuela, Iran, and other authoritarian regimes that we have challenges with. And I can imagine a few scenarios that would endanger our society more than a presidential candidate who refuses to accept the outcome of an election. Secretary uh, Pompeo, this year the Committee to Protect Journalists issued a report 
on the harm this president has caused to journalists, First Amendment rights. In their um, summary, the committee states, and I quote, the Trump administration has stepped up the prosecutions of news sources, interfered in the business of media owners, harassed journalists crossing U.S. borders, and empowered foreign leaders to restrict their own media. But Trump's most effective ploy has been to destroy the credibility of the press, dangerously undermining truth and consensus even as COVID the COVID-19 pandemic threatens to kill tens of thousands of Americans. That's the end of their quote. Are you concerned that instead of promoting press freedom abroad, America is now providing moral support to authoritarian efforts to crack down on critical media outlets from Russia to China to Venezuela and beyond. No, I'm not remotely concerned about that. And over 150,000 Americans have now died from COVID-19 and we mourn their loss. Uh, like most tragedies, this is one that could have been prevented, like the president's response to Hurricane Maria and other disasters the federal government's response has been nowhere near up to the challenge. Instead, this administration is now trying to change the narrative by attacking its own citizens at home and weakening the United States abroad. Across the world, our allies in New Zealand, Japan, Australia, South Korea, and many in Europe have taken the science and the threat of COVID-19 seriously. The result is that they are beginning to return to normal. Even countries with very different systems than ours, such as communist Vietnam and Cuba, are beginning to reemerge from this deadly disease. Secretary Pompeo, the best practices of these countries is simple. Isolate, track and trace, quarantine, and wear a mask. We don't even know if the National Security Advisor has met with you or other members of the National Security Council lately. The U.S. has not done those things sufficiently, and here we are. Secretary Pompeo, you and the White House seem to want to blame China for our inability to respond to this pandemic as well as to our allies. Is it true that they're handling the virus? And it's true that they're handling the virus at the early onset was problematic. But we are responsible for our own response. Do you think the president should look to Europe, South Korea, Japan, and other more successful nations to learn about how to better contain this pandemic. Well, an awful lot to unpack there, Senator. Uh, first, I, I would tell you that some of the countries that you identified, um, you're looking at the data that they're putting out, it's worthless. So when you're comparing it to data from other countries, one ought not in a Senate hearing put that data forward as dispositive about the conditions on the ground in those countries. It's, it's silly. Uh, I mean, they're just the facts are they're just they're not tracking. They're not they're not counting cases. Um, so we, we need to make sure we have a, a shared factual database. Yeah, we should we should look everywhere uh, to get best practices about how uh, to respond to this. And I know that our doctors, Dr. Perks, who works for me, is now over at the White House working on us. They've done that. Uh, and we'll continue to do that to make sure we protect the American people in an appropriate way. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Udall. Uh, with that, uh, the committee is going to be at ease, subject to the call of the chair for approximately 10 minutes. Committee will come to order. Uh, next up, Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, welcome back, uh, Mr. Secretary. Good to see you again. I appreciated uh, your comments, uh, opening statement, specifically related to 
Nord Stream 2. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about that because we know energy security is essential to national security. Nord Stream 2 threatens European energy security, increases Russian monopoly over the region. It, to me, is the, this pipeline is a Russian trap. Uh, strongly support your recent announcement aimed at stopping this dangerous pipeline. As you know, Congress is uh, working to quickly provide the administration with additional tools uh, to prevent Nord Stream 2 from uh, ever being completed. Um, the last few weeks, both the Senate and House passed their own versions of the National Defense Authorization Act, includes new bipartisan Nord Stream 2 sanctions. Uh, could you talk about the administration's commitment to opposing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and applying sanctions against those companies aiding in the completion of this R Russian trap? You know, the, the irony is that this administration is accused by some of not being tough on Russia. I mean, this President Trump personally took on this. He saw that this was a threat, uh, that uh, this pipeline being threat created enormous leverage for Russia, not only against Germany and broader Europe, but Ukraine as well. Uh, and so uh, we set about and with, with good support on Capitol Hill, uh, we got legislation that was appropriate to uh, now have delayed this project significantly. We need further tools. We're prepared to use those tools should you provide them uh, to us. Uh, and, and we've also used our diplomatic capabilities uh, to make clear to countries that we're going to do the other end too, right? We're going to make sure that American LNG can be sold into these countries. We want Europe to have a secure, stable, diverse uh, set of energy opportunities, and uh, our Department of Energy has worked alongside of us to do that. Uh, and our ENR Department, uh, Assistant Secretary Fannin, are, are working to make sure that Europe has real, secure, stable, safe energy sources that cannot be turned off in the event that Russia decides they want to do so. We think Nord Stream 2 is dangerous in that respect. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that that pipeline doesn't threaten Europe. Mr. Secretary, I'd like to move now to the Iranian arms embargo. Uh, the international arms embargo in Iran, as you know, is set to expire October of this year. Uh, to my great astonishment, we are having to persuade the international community of the importance of preventing Iran, the world's leading state sponsor of terror, from purchasing advanced weapons. Uh, it'll dramatically increase the ability of Iran to arm terrorists, proxy groups across the region. We've seen that more weapons will likely flow to Hamas, the Houthis, Hezbollah, and Lebanon. Despite the terrible consequences, many experts believe that any extension of the Iranian arms embargo would be vetoed by Russia or by China. What do Russia and China want the Iran arms embargo? Why would they want it to expire? And is the Chinese Communist Party really willing to betray global security uh, in order to be Iran's arms dealer? Well, I hope not, but I expect so. Uh, we've been working to convince the Russians to permit this arms embargo to be extended. We've been talking to the Chinese for months and months and months. We're working with our E3 counterparts as well. Uh, we will submit a UN Security Council resolution in the near future uh, where we will offer to extend this. This was one of the the central failings of the JCPOA was to have a, only a five-year ban on uh, the Iranian capacity to both purchase weapon systems, build out uh, air defense systems, the capacity to protect uh, a nuclear program should they continue down that path, uh, but also to sell weapons around the world and become, again, as they were before, one of the world's largest arms dealers. Uh, we're we're going to do everything we can. We believe we have the capacity to do this at the United Nations, we hope that the UN Security Council will conclude that extending this arms embargo is the right thing. In the event they don't, we're going to use every tool that we have at our fingertips to make sure that that arms embargo is not lifted on October 18th of this year. We think it decreases stability in the Middle East. We think that would threaten Israel, and we're confident it reduces American security as well. 
And uh, on to religious freedom, uh, Sam Brownback, a former member of, of this body, ambassador at large for international religious freedom, recently wrote, uh, humanity is why religious freedom will always win out against governments and non-state actors seeking to repress and control it. But we have seen around the world authoritarian regimes continuing to attempt to restrict religious freedoms and the rights of individuals. Uh, could you discuss efforts by the administration that you've taken to promote international religious freedoms? So we, we have raised the priority of international religious freedom inside of the State Department. I think that's happened, I think, under President Trump and Vice President Pence, that's happened all across the administration. Uh, we use our diplomatic tools to encourage it. We uh, build resilience. We work with uh, religious communities in many countries to provide them security. The work that we're doing in northern Iraq today is a good example, uh, but there's still lots of challenges. Uh, what's happening in Nigeria to Christians today, what's happening to Muslims in western China, uh, your, your point about the threat to religious freedom and the exercise of conscience for people of all faiths uh, is under attack in too many places. Uh, the State Department has an important role to decrease the or increase the capacity for people to exercise their rights of religious freedom. And, uh, you know, we, we've held these two ministerials. We weren't able to do it this year because of the virus, um, but we brought people from all across the world. The world's largest human rights gatherings uh, in all of history were held at the State Department twice uh, around the central idea that people need to be able to exercise this important right to uh, just have their own faith. And, and earlier today, you, when we move on to, to China, I think you said you called the Chinese Communist Party the central threat of our times. Uh, we had your deputy here a couple of weeks ago, had a chance to talk about the issues related uh, to China. To me, they're working to expand their military capabilities to advance their global ambitions. They want to dominate globally. Uh, in the last few months, we've seen them increase military aggression, uh, in, whether it's near, near Taiwan, the South China Sea, uh, Japan. We've seen incursions, what they've been doing in, in Hong Kong, what they've been doing at home. Um, can you talk about the recent confrontations by China and what that taught us about China's military ambitions as well as their capabilities? Because when we go to secure briefings, we ask lots about their capabilities, not just what they might do, but what they can do. Not will they or won't they, but can they or can't they? So I, I think these actions, and when you say recent, uh, the last 24, 36 months, I think the actions are entirely consistent with what they have been signaling to the world for uh, decades. You might even argue since 1989, but certainly since Central, General Secretary Xi came to power. Uh, it's a desire to expand their power, their, re their reach. Uh, they talk about this, right? They talk about bringing uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics to the world. And whether it's you, you identified some, but a claim that they've now made uh, for real estate in Bhutan, the incursion that took place in India, these are indicative of Chinese intentions, and they're testing, they're probing, they're probing the world to see if we're going to stand up to their uh, threats and their bullying. And I'm, I'm more confident than I was even, even a year ago that the world is prepared to do that. There's a lot more work to do, and we need to be serious about it. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Chair. Senator Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good morning, Mr. Secretary. Um, let me say at the outset, I am very grateful for uh, your proposal to double the budget of the Global Engagement Center. This is, uh, of course, a, a center to counteract propaganda outside of the United States that was established through legislation uh, written by myself and Senator Portman, and I'm glad that you have recognized the importance and the good work of that center. Um, though we have spent a lot of time in this hearing talking about many of our concern uh, regarding 
um, our adversaries' desire to use propaganda uh, not outside of the United States, but in fact inside of the United States to influence the 2020 election. And so I want to begin by asking you a question about that. Um, uh, Russia in particular uh, has sought to weave together stories about U.S. persons and Ukrainian persons over the course of the past year uh, in order to both try to sow chaos and dissent in the United States, but also to try to screw with Ukrainian politics as well. It's kind of a double whammy for the Russians. Um, and you can see those efforts ramping up as we head into the 2020 election. Probably the most active foreign individual pushing narratives about the United States and Ukraine is a Ukrainian legislator uh, by the name of uh, Andrei Durkach. Um, he was the individual that uh, magically came into possession of secret audio recordings uh, of Vice President Biden and uh, then President Poroshenko. Um, he's maintained, he's, he's retained um, government relations council here, and I would expect that he's going to be a pretty active presence in uh, uh, U.S. politics from here to the election. So just a simple question on behalf of my constituents and maybe my colleagues as well. Um, should we view Andrei Durkacz as a credible source of information? Uh, I'll answer your question, but let me just say on GEC real quick, because uh, I think that's important. Thank you for the compliment. I, I want to make sure, uh, I, the only thing I'm worried about with asking for a doubling of the money is to make sure that we can deploy it in a way that we've been pretty successful as it's grown, but when you expand something at 100% year on year, I have a team driving to make sure we don't misuse or, or, or waste those resources. Uh, look, I don't want to comment on any particular individual like Mr. Durkacz. I, I will say this. We're, we're taking seriously the threats that uh, Russia will try to engage in disinformation campaigns, that there may be oligarchs that try and engage in this. There may be uh, foreign actors, not just Russian. Uh, we were pretty successful at this in the 2018 election. I say we, not the State Department alone, but all the United States government, I'm confident we will be in this one as well. Why wouldn't you be willing to opine on a specific individual if you had information to suggest that the uh, source was not credible? It seems as if that is, in fact, a core function of the U.S. government, if it has information to uh, um, that, that, that would uh, suggest um, malign influence uh, to let Congress and the American people know. Yeah. So if when it's appropriate, I will. When uh, there's still work ongoing and there's still unsettled intelligence around these things, uh, I'm going to try to be just a little bit more careful, Senator. Um, let me turn to China for a moment. China is clearly seeking to use the United States' failure uh, to control COVID as a means to leapfrog us um, in our traditional leadership position when it comes to global health. Um, Senator Romney referred to this earlier. I think we've given two big gifts to the Chinese since the beginning of this outbreak. The first was the president's um, you know, just uh, remarkable fawning over China's early response to the virus 47 different times. Uh, he commended China uh, for their response and their transparency. Um, but I think China also is pretty happy with our withdrawal from the WHO. Um, and I understand that you believe, as I understand it, that our withdrawal from the WHO is a lever to try to seek internal change, and I would disagree. Um, but it also seems to allow for China to step in and occupy that vacuum. And so as you step back and try to 
articulate this sort of broad strategy to counteract China's growing influence in the world, how does withdrawal from the WHO counteract the growing influence of China? Yeah. So it's a good question. These are close calls sometimes, right? We, we left the UN Human Rights Council. The same argument was made, better to fight from within than to try and reform from outside. I think there are reasonable arguments that can be made on either side. Um, the, the decision that the president made, and I, I, I concur with this decision, um, we went through multiple rounds of reforms at the World Health Organization. Our team in Geneva fought for years, and previous administrations too. And each time we got reforms, there was no capacity to make that a science-based organization and not a political one. And there comes a point where you're spending half a billion dollars of U.S. taxpayer money year on year that goes to benefit uh, political actors inside the World Health Organization. And we ultimately made the conclusion that we were more likely to achieve the global health uh, security issues that the United States cares about deeply if we did not participate any further in the World Health Organization. I am not at all convinced that it will be China that benefits from that. I'm convinced that the world will benefit. We saw it with PEPFAR. We've seen it with Gavi. We've seen it other places. When the United States leads, and we will absolutely lead, uh, good things can happen in the international health realm. It won't surprise you uh, that I would dispute your characterization of the WHO. It is an international body. There is no way that there won't be some level of politics infecting the decisions that a body made up of historic adversaries um, will, will go through. But it is a science-based organization, uh, and it is one that is indispensable to the continuation of our efforts to try to prevent the next disease. And I really shudder to think about our ability to uh, stop the next COVID if we are not uh, back into the WHO. Finally, in the remaining time I have, and this is a complicated question, but um, again, back to Senator Romney's line of questioning about the capabilities that we should be developing with our allies to try to counteract China. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't think it's sustainable for this administration or any other administration to uh, try to go around the world bullying and shaming our friends and sort of half friends into not doing business with China. We've got to have an answer um, for the things that China is offering. And um, on the technology front, um, we don't have a great answer for 5G. And we may not have a great answer for whatever China is going to put out there on AI or advanced battery technology. Um, isn't this essential uh, to our counter-China strategy, not just to shame other countries into uh, forsaking Chinese technology, but actually to work with our allies to develop our own alternatives? A thousand percent. Absolutely, Senator Murphy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate your having uh, the opportunity to let us talk to the Secretary of State today. This, is, this has been very helpful, very informative. Um, I, I will say with regard to China and developing technologies with our allies, we have a lot to do right here in the United States to get our own house in order. So we're, we're pretty good at pointing fingers at China, and it's usually um, appropriate, but we also aren't doing much here to protect ourselves. And um, I, I want to thank you because you have provided some great help from your career professionals with regard to our efforts to push back against China taking our technology. And in particular, China has these programs. Uh, you mentioned they've been doing it for a while. They've been doing it for two decades. Uh, where they come over here, they find promising research and researchers, they systematically target them, and then they take that research over to China. And it, it is military, it is economic, it's healthcare, it's everything. And uh, over the last couple of years, we've worked hard on this uh, with an investigation, a report, and now legislation called the Securing American Innovation Act. But with regard to the State Department piece of this, your career people have come and testified before us, said that they need more tools to be able to stop folks who they know are coming here uh, to deal with export control, 
technologies uh, who are coming over here to actually take steal our stuff and, and take it back to China, but they are unable to stop those people from coming in despite affiliations with the People's Liberation Army, affiliations with the Chinese Communist Party, and in many cases, uh, uh, you know, a, a history of taking research. So we worked with uh, one of your uh, Pearson Fellows. You told me about the Pearson Fellowship, and I took advantage of it. The last year, Mark Weevils has been working with us. He's a consular affairs officer. Mm -hmm. He's done a terrific job. Uh, and we have put together some legislation that's very balanced, says, hey, we want research. We want the American research enterprise to benefit from international cooperation, but we don't want to have this U.S. taxpayer-funded research being, being stolen. So I thank you for that. Uh, I would just ask you, do you agree that these new visa authorities we have in that legislation are helpful to protect taxpayer-funded research and intellectual property from our adversaries, including China? They definitely are. And we need, we need an expanded tool set to make sure that we get this right. We're, we're making progress. Um, our, our teams um, working alongside um, the FBI to identify uh, these risks are working hard on this set of issues. Um, I'll say this too, we all need to be candid. When we go back to our home states and we talk to the universities in our states, the education industrial complex is alive and well. Uh, we, we need to be candid with them about what's taking place in some of these institutions of higher learning all across America and be thoughtful about how we respond to this um, this influence and theft operation that's being conducted. That's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, there are, there are five different provisions in the legislation. One of them relates directly to our universities and research institutions. And to their credit, a number of them have worked with us and we've worked with them. Uh, Senator Carper and I have taken the lead on this in this legislation. It's a bipartisan bill, bipartisan supporters. But there are universities and associations that are pushing back hard. Uh, and frankly, I think they're naive uh, and, and aren't willing to face up to the threat that, that, that's out there, and it's a national security threat. Um, I'm glad that over the last couple of weeks that we have had the opportunity to confirm some good nominees from the Department of State, and I'm concerned that the backlog uh, built up to the point where you really had a tough time running the department, and there's more to go. We have more nominees coming up next week. I understand we may have finally the nominee for Ambassador to Japan at a critical time. One I want to ask you about, though, uh, in particular is Ukraine. and. Uh, you know, uh, Senator Cardin's not here today, but, you know, back in 2014, we, we went over to Ukraine right after the Revolution of Dignity. And in those six years intervening, a lot of good has happened in Ukraine, but a lot of bad has happened, too. And we see it right now. We're once again at a tipping point. The ceasefire is not holding. I understand there have been about 100 violations of it recently. Uh, the Russian aggression continues. Ukraine made a decision six years ago to turn to us in the West, and yet uh, we, we still have a situation where they're not getting the support that they need. So two questions for you. How important is it to get Lieutenant General Dayton confirmed as the ambassador in, in Ukraine, number one? Uh, I think he's highly qualified. I'm really pleased with that nomination. And number two, uh, do you agree with what we just did in the National Defense Authorization Bill, which was to uh, have a record amount of lethal aid going to Ukraine? We've gone from roughly $50 million to $125 million in that legislation. Do you support that increased funding for lethal aid for Ukraine to be able to defend itself? I, I do. The administration does support the increase in lethal aid. It's important to get the general out there, although I will say our charge on the ground there today is doing a very, very good work. It's in, but it's important to get a confirmed ambassador in that position. If I might just add this, too, we're still thinking we, it was a real loss when Ambassador Volker uh, departed. The work that he was doing was important to the State Department's overall effort in the region, and we're hoping to get we're hoping to get that position uh, with just the right person filled as well, so that we have a full-on effort there to help the Ukrainian people maintain their democracy. 
We'll, get, we'll have a chance to talk to Lieutenant General Dayton, at least remotely, uh, when he comes. But he's done a good job, in my view, of modernizing their military and, and you know, knows the Ukrainian issues uh, uh, inside and out. And he's the right person at the right time. And, and I'm, I'm pleased he's willing to step up and do it. It was a good choice. Um, with regard to, to Germany, just my point of view for what it's worth, not asking you a question here uh, particularly, but I think moving troops out of Germany is a good idea if they stay in Europe. And in particular, Poland has been asking for years now, you know, to allow U.S. troops to come to Poland. They've even offered us a base. Uh, I was there several years ago where, where they uh, agreed to, uh, um, you know, pay for the base. And I don't know if that's still an offer. But the Baltics, Eastern Europe in particular, it seems to me that's the appropriate place to move, to move those troops. And I, I agree that Germany is not the right place for the number of troops that we have. Rather, they should be closer to, to where the action is and, the, and the, frankly, the countries that are at most risk right now. So I don't know if you have any comment on that, but I would hope that they would be able to stay in, in Europe. Uh, Senator, I'll just, um, one thing I'll, I'll add, I'll, I'll leave to the Department of Defense to talk about exact dispositions and numbers in particular countries. Um, but with respect to Poland, we don't yet have our defense cooperation agreement quite done. And so uh, uh, we're the State Department's working diligently with our DOD colleagues to get that done so that in the event the Department of Defense makes that decision, the President concludes it's the right thing to do, we can put those forces in there in a way that protects them as well. Uh, finally, just on Global Globalization Center, thanks to Senator Murphy for raising th those issues. Uh, he asked the same kind of questions that I would have asked. Uh, Leah Gabriel, in my view, is doing a terrific job with trying to reorder and, you know, take the DOD money that is now going to go directly to you and use it more effectively. Uh, we, of course, uh, uh, agree with you that that needs to be well spent. There is a timely example on this. The United States, under your leadership, has provided $2.3 billion of congressionally uh, appropriated money to help other countries combat COVID-19. And I think we've gotten very little credit for it. And I hope that we can do more in terms of talking about what we're doing that's helpful. But what's happened is instead, China and Russia are spreading disinformation. And we've heard about it here in this committee saying that, you know, the virus was created in a lab by Bill Gates or that COVID-19 was brought to China by American soldiers, other false narratives. Global Engagement Center is the perfect place to push back on that. And I hope we're doing that. I don't know if you have any comment on that. No, no sir. We're, we are working on that. It's important. I actually think with respect to COVID, I think the world gets it. I think they know who the bad actor here was. They can't all say it publicly. Uh, but I'm convinced that the efforts, not only that the United States has made, but other countries, too, to push back against this disinformation have been powerful and effective. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And Mr. Secretary, welcome. Thank you. Uh, the context in which we have this hearing is very, very complicated. And it's almost, it's just almost too much to talk about. Uh, in the last 24 hours, we passed 150,000 deaths in this country to coronavirus. And in my view, and I think in the view of, of many, a sizable percentage of those were preventable had the United States handled the pandemic better. Uh, this morning, the Department of Commerce indicated that the economy, because of COVID, shrunk at the greatest rate ever in recorded history in the second quarter of the year. And then this morning, the president is suggesting that the presidential election should be delayed. And I, I sort of want to start there. This is not something that either you or I were prepared to talk about today because I think it happened in the middle of the hearing. Uh, the president sent out a tweet that said, quote, delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote, question mark. Not saying it will happen, but raising a question. Can a president delay the November presidential election, Mr. Secretary? Senator, I'm not going to enter a legal judgment on that on the fly this morning. 
Mr. Secretary, you are an honors graduate of West Point. You are a graduate of the Harvard Law School. You were on the Harvard Law Review. I was at Harvard Law School, and I went to a lot of Red Sox games. I went on the Harvard Law Review. You are <laughs> Very one kind of, of you, you, thank you. You are, you are one of the most highly trained and accomplished lawyers who are part of this administration. Um, can a president delay a presidential election? Senator, the, 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 in the end, the Department of Justice, others will, will make that legal determination. We, we all should want, I know you do too, Senator Kane, want to make sure we have a, an election that everyone is confident in. That's not only for you. Free, are you validated. indifferent to the date of the election? It should happen lawfully. Right. Yeah. It should happen lawfully. Yeah. So, so for, the, for the record, um, because you may not want to comment on it, but I do think it's important. A president cannot delay an election. The date of the election is established by Congress. It was established in 1845. There is no ability for a president to delay an election. And I don't think it's that hard a question or one that should lead to any equivocation by somebody who's fourth in line of succession to be president of the United States. So let me, let me ask another question. Was Marie Yovanovitch a talented public servant? I'm not going to comment on that personnel matter. Was she a valuable part of the State Department family? Senator, again, the, the president made the very clear decision that he preferred that she not be our ambassador. It's fully within his right. That every, completely, every, I completely Every agree. one of us that takes this takes on these jobs knows that at any minute we could be gone. I'm, I'm not asking that. This is yep. not a question about the president's power. Yes. I'm asking about your opinion of her as a public servant. Senator, I didn't interact with Ambassador Ivanovich. You, you did not? No, not significantly. So, so you yeah. do not really have a, you, you don't consider that you have Senator, a... Senator, I'm not going to talk about this. There, there will be a place and a time for me to talk about this, and I... I'm looking forward to that. It is not the case that I talk about personnel matters. Well, in the wait, public. you 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 were very I, willing to tell us what you didn't like about the Inspector General. That, that's in so, response so that's, to, yep. to Senator Menendez. I, I was very different situation. A, a, a very very different situation. There have been accusations about misconduct and malfeasance, and assertions that I fired someone because they're investigating me. That it, it demands a response. There, there's going to be a public report. I, I, just, I want to make this, sure this is I different, understand this is different, your testimony. And, and I've, I've been steadfast in this. So uh, You've asked me about other ambassadors before, too. I haven't talked about them who were great and doing wonderful things. I didn't you, say you, that either. You've been steadfast. I'm trying to determine whether you've been steadfast or not, since I have so many State Department employees that live in the Commonwealth of Virginia yes. who are very, very concerned about whether or not a Secretary of State might have the back of a career professional who is a valued person. You were on a phone call. Mm -hmm. With President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine, when the president said about Ambassador Ivanovich, she's going to go through some things. Do you know what the president meant when he said that? I don't. But, but you were on that call. That's been yes, reported. I, yes, I was. When he said that about Marie Ivanovich, did you ever follow up and ask the president what he meant? Senator, I'm confident that every action we took with Ambassador Ivanovich was completely appropriate. That, that's not the question I asked. But it's the, it's the truth. Well, that, that may be the truth, but how about answering my question? Not going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about internal discussions at the State Department. You wouldn't want me to. Neither would your constituents, Senator Kane. They wouldn't want the Secretary of State to come up here and talk about internal conversation about personal matters. You know that. That's not appropriate. Well, can can you just <laughs> listen to my question? Sure, you were on the phone call. Yeah. You heard the president say that about Marie Ivanovich, and my mm -hmm. question to you is: Did you ask what the president meant about that? 
Senator Austin. Yes or no? The answer is I'm not going to talk about either. I guess that you're asking, did I ask the president yeah. what he meant? I, I don't talk about conversations. You, you told me you anymore. don't know what he meant. Yes. But I, but I just asked if you yeah, asked. And I, yeah, I, understand. I appreciate your question, and I yeah. hope you can appreciate why I don't talk about conversations with the president. Here, here was some testimony we heard in this room the other day from your, I believe it's Executive Secretary, uh, uh, Lisa Kenna, who was here for a hearing about her nomination to be ambassador to Peru. She said in her work with you, the, the work that her office does, they get correspondence for you. Some they open mm-hmm. and sort of categorize and classify before they deliver it to you. And then she said there's a second category of correspondence that they don't open if it's personal to you, if it's for your eyes only, if it's you know something from another cabinet member. They would not open that, but they would just deliver it to you. But she said there's a third category of documents that was documents delivered by Rudy Giuliani to you, which didn't go through the process of being opened, and it also didn't go through the process of coming to her and having it delivered to you. It came directly to you. Um, What was your response to Rudy Giuliani's effort to sack Ambassador Yovanovitch. Did you say, hey, it's not your job, this is my job? The President of the United States has the unconditional right to have the ambassadors a he complete, wants. Stipulated for the record. But it's what the, was it's your, the central, what was it's your the central, interaction I, with Rudy Senator, I, I appreciate this. Uh, don't, don't go into great um, magical effects with respect to how a package came. It's, 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 it's all silliness. You, well, you, should, you I, should know for the record that that package was delivered to Capitol Hill by the former Inspector General, who ran frantically to Capitol Hill and made a big news. It made uh, big news. My time is up. I'm just going to say, <laughs> you might think this is silly. Yeah. You might think these questions are silly. Yeah. But when somebody works for their entire career for the State Department, and they are slandered mm-hmm. with lies... and sacked for no good reason. That sends a message that could not be clear to other State Department officials. And it may be just a big joke. I mean, hey, look look at you smiling and laughing and calling it silly. I don't think it's silly to Marie Ivanovich or the people who work for you. I don't think it's silly to the United States Department of State to understand that every ambassador, every political appointee knows that the President of the United States finds that they lack confidence in you. The President has the right to terminate them. It's that easy. It includes me. That's Senator Paul. That's straightforward. And you should note, I didn't slander anyone. I did, I did, this was handled appropriately and properly, Senator. <clears throat> History demonstrates that wars are easier to start than they are to end. I think that's fair. <laughs> we have agreement. We have agreement. I think the Afghan war is a great example of that. Uh, you know, after nearly 20 years of war, many are questioning the mission. In fact, many have been questioning what the mission is in Afghanistan for a decade or more. Uh, including President Trump. Um, I traveled with him to the sad duty at at Dover, receiving two of our soldiers home, and I know it affects him personally. I know he's been very public and very consistent and I think very sincere in wanting to end the war in Afghanistan. Army Lieutenant General Dan McNeil put it this way when asked about the mission. He says, I tried to get someone to define for me what winning meant, even before I went over, and nobody could. Nobody would give me a good definition of what it meant. Some people were thinking in terms of Jeffersonian democracy, but there's just not going to, that's just not going to happen in Afghanistan. This statement was 13 years ago. When asked about our mission, General Douglas Lute said, 
We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. What are we trying to do there? We didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were doing. This is from five years ago. How long is it going to take? You know, what, what is our current mission? Why are, why are we in Afghanistan? Do we have a, a cogent military reason to be in Afghanistan right now? So the president's given two missions. One is to reduce our force posture, both the risk to our young men and women who are fighting there. And the second is to ensure that there's not a terror attack that emanates from that space. Uh, we set about conducting a peace and reconciliation process. We've now reduced forces there uh, by about half since their most recent peak. We're on our way to reduce even further. I'm hopeful that we will get the Afghans to begin their negotiation because President Trump has made very clear his expectation. We've entered into agreement that we'll go to zero. We'll get our forces out of there. I think it's May of next year. We're looking to do that on terms that make sure we protect America from a Would you agree that Afghanistan is just one of probably hundreds of places that we uh, potentially have terror threats or radical Islamic threats uh, and may not even be the no longer the primary place? I, I, uh, hundreds, if you'll give me dozens and dozens, yes, sir, absolutely. Yeah. And... Um, do you think that maybe it's, a, you know, we talked about in uh, Europe that we had hundreds of thousands of troops in, in Germany because there was the Soviet Union and they had, I don't know, two million, three million people in their army. And we had this sort of Cold War standoff, but it, circumstances have changed and maybe even your opinion has changed over whether or not we need so many troops in Germany. And I applaud that. I think the same is in Afghanistan. It's certainly changed over 20 years. The war on terror is now... It always has been sort of a global one, but uh, I think it may be a 20th century idea that we have to occupy territory so much that we have to have acres and we have to have large bases, particularly in countries that uh, are in prolonged civil war. But the other question is, is really, is our, is our goal in these, in these locations around the world, our national security, or is our goal sometimes muddied by the idea that basically Oh, you know, we're in Afghanistan for for the Equal Rights Amendment or for women's rights or we're there for, you know, democracy or making a country out of Afghanistan. Are we there for building roads? You know, we built a $45 million natural gas gas station in Afghanistan. They have no cars that run on natural gas, so we bought them cars that ran on natural gas. They have no money, so we gave them a credit card. My understanding is that the gas station was supposed to cost a half a million, cost 45 million, and is no longer functioning. So, I mean, is our goal national security or is nation building part of what we should be doing as a country? I think President Trump's made it unambiguous. Our, our mission set there is American national security, plain and simple. It, it, I, I'd add only this. There, there are times in the world where we are better off if there are democratic nations. The State Department is designed, right, to, to provide, to, to build resilience, to kind of do this kind of thing. But um, I do think our foreign policy sometimes has been overly ambitious about what it is we can accomplish through the use of military force with respect to getting other nations to Well, I think encouraging like democracy America. and being part of supportive of democracy doesn't mean we have to pay for trying to institute our image in some other country because it just doesn't, frankly, work. Um, when we look at trying to end the Afghan war, I think in some ways we are stuck in the sense that People have decided we can only leave with a, some sort of treaty with the Taliban, some sort of agreement with the Taliban. I'm sort of of the opinion that in some ways it might make it worse because I think that the Taliban aren't necessarily trustworthy. 
And if we leave under the agreement that they have to meet certain parameters, which is what we're looking towards, and then they break those parameters, we're right back in, you know, with a, with a threat to stay in. I think it's uh, almost that the threat has to be, and maybe the threat should have been this 20 or even 30 years ago, the threat should be that if you harbor terrorists that are organizing international terrorism, that you know you, there will be military repercussions. But those don't have to be landing fifty thousand troops. It might be landing fifty thousand bombs. Absolutely right. You know, and so I think we need to think about what our and I think we haven't escaped. We're, we're still stuck in this idea of we have to we've occupied this acreage and we have to do something with it. You know, and we can't leave until it's perfect. It's never going to be perfect there. And all, the only thing I would just exhort you is that let's don't base it completely on you know that we have to have a perfect deal to leave i think there's always the threat that we can come back and people say well we there's 10 there's 10 al-qaeda left in afghanistan they might be plotting right now and um you know the president has admitted you've said they're a shadow of themselves the president has admitted there have been reports that there are you know now we are talking dozens not hundreds we're talking dozens not thousands uh, same with the Islamic State. Uh, General Lute came and spoke to one of our committees recently, and he said he couldn't name any group there that he thought had the capability to uh, attack the, the United States. And he said there was no evidence that the so-called Islamic State presents a threat to the U.S. from Afghanistan. Um, so I think we do need to be mindful of that, but we do have to work towards finishing it. And the only thing I'd say in the end, because I, I don't want to finish this without mentioning, that it takes friends of the president. The president has policy. People have to try to fulfill his policy. And I think for a long time, for several years, uh, John Bolton was trying to thwart that. And John Bolton was an enemy of the president's policy. So I hope the people who are remaining will try to fulfill the president's policy and get us out of the war in Afghanistan. Thank you. If I may just take one second, Senator Rich, with your, with your permission. Your, your point, Senator, Senator Paul, about the... Uh, about the, the global spectrum of terrorism and the fact that there are dozens of al-Qaeda left in Afghanistan. I think that's the central thing that the American people need to understand. Wherever we were 15 or 20 years ago is not where we are today. And our resources, whether it's our decision in Germany or the decision about forced posture in, uh, in Asia or Africa or in Afghanistan or Syria or any place else, uh, we need to make sure that it's updated for the actual threats presented to the United States of America. And that's what, that's what President Trump is driving us to do. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Merkley. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, I want to start with the events that have, have occurred in, in Hong Kong and what I really see as a violation of the agreement uh, made with, with, with Britain, between China and Britain. And now that uh, these e events, this new Chinese law that uh, really uh, exerts enormous um, uh, violations of uh, civil rights in Hong Kong has occurred. Should we extend asylum and visa opportunities to those who are being persecuted by the Chinese in Hong Kong? We're, we're reviewing that. We're considering it. The, the British have made a good decision. The Australians have made a decision. They're going to accept um, up to hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, we're, we're looking at uh, how best we might accomplish this in, in Consistent with making sure that um, we, we, we always want to encourage people uh, to try to work from within to the extent they can as well. And so it's, it's important that we get this right. Uh, and the president is actively considering how we ought to treat those who seek asylum coming to us from Hong Kong or to grant a visa program that surrounds that. Well, it sounds like you're open to the opportunity and are, are reviewing it. Uh, and I, I do feel like there are folks who will be highly targeted 
uh, and they are concerned about being locked up for the rest of their lives, young folks, 18, 20 years old in, in China, Chinese prisons. Do the events in Hong Kong change our perspectives on Taiwan or make us think about ways to be more supportive of Taiwan? We obviously do a, a lot of arms sales and so forth, but should we be um, more active in supporting Taiwanese participation in international institutions? Senator, I, they are different situations. Uh, there was an agreement with Hong Kong. Taiwan is all, it's, they, they are different. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the Chinese Communist Party views them as the same, right? If you ask the Chinese Communist Party, they would both view them as, as part of their territory. Uh, and so that requires diligence in your question about international organizations, uh, not only the team that I have assigned to that, but the regional bureaus as well are working on multiple fronts. We, we took a run at this in the World Health Assembly uh, now a couple months back, and we've taken, taken this on at the United Nations to make sure that Taiwan is represented in every place that it's appropriate that they be represented as part of formal and informal international gatherings. There's a longstanding convention that the President of the United States should not meet with the President of Taiwan because it would offend China. Do you agree with that longstanding convention? Senator, if I may defer that, I'm happy to, I'm happy to have a conversation with you about it. Here's, here's, what, here's what I'll say with respect to Taiwan. There are a series of understandings that have been long held, multiple administrations, multiple parties. Uh, we intend to continue to honor that. We understand the Taiwan Relations Act and the obligations that the United States government has with respect to that. We're, we're working to recognize the changes that General Secretary Xi has made with respect to this, and we want to make sure we get this right. Saudi Arabia uh, has been abetting the flight of Saudi nationals who have done horrific crimes in, in America. And so really two questions. Do you agree that this effort to uh, sweep people out of our country who have done or are charged with doing horrific things before they can be tried is unacceptable? And do you agree if it continues to occur, the U.S. should use significant diplomatic consequences uh, for Saudi Arabia? Yes to both questions, Senator. Thank, thank you. So there is um, uh, the report that, um, well, we've done several things in, in regard uh, to uh, the situation in uh, Xinjiang and the Chinese incarceration, basically uh, slave camps of, of, a, of a million uh, Uyghurs. And we've done some recent things, and I applaud those, uh, recent steps to impose sanctions uh, to uh, block exports that were done with forced labor in China. Um, but I also feel like there's another narrative that has undermined kind of the effectiveness of, of this. And um, as we, we, we've heard about uh, the president's comments in November 2017 trip to China, uh, where he indicated that uh, President Xi should go ahead with building concentration camps. And then again in June 2019, a year and a half later, uh, the president's, our president's, President Trump's conversation with President Xi saying again, basically, it should go ahead building the camps and it's the, the right thing to do. Uh, I think it's absolutely the, the wrong thing to do, and I, we have done some, as I noted, some steps that uh, suggest that's, but should, should we be 
more robust at every level in condemning the Chinese enslavement of the Uyghurs? Uh, Senator, I'm actually, I think the answer is yes. I'm proud of what we've done, the way that the United States has responded, not only the responses we've taken directly, but the work we've done around the world to convince the whole world uh, of what's taking place there. Uh, I've been disappointed to see um, Muslim countries uh, not respond when there are often significant Muslim populations being impacted there in Western China. Uh, we're urging them to take this on uh, in a serious way. Uh, and then I guess the last thing I'd say is uh, I think the, with, with the objective of changing the behaviors that are taking place there, uh, this is an important economic region. And so the things that we're endeavoring to do, it's important we get the human rights piece of this right. It's important that we get the individual sanctions piece of this right. But it is very important, and I'm, I'm really happy with the work we're making to convince businesses, not just American businesses, because it's an international place of business, uh, that they should really look hard at their supply chains, not just their direct employees, but their supply chains and what's taking place there. I think if we get that right, we have the opportunity to, to change what's taking place there. A, a quick point and a, and a, a final question because I'm running out of, of time. Uh, the uh, UN fact-finding mission on the Rohingya, the U.S. Holocaust Museum, a law group engaged by the State Department to investigate atrocities, have all found strong evidence of, of genocide by Burma. I really hope the United States will declare it to be genocide uh, because it is. Uh, and. Um, and it would, it would strengthen our representation and advocacy for human rights in the world. But I want to turn to Honduras in my final question. Uh, the State Department Human Rights Report talks about extrajudicial killings, torture, arbitrary arrest, detention, violence against indigenous um, Hondurans, violence against the LGBT communities. And in addition, we had in October uh, a U.S. federal court uh, find that uh, the president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, was implicated as a co-conspirator in widespread drug trafficking and money laundering. Yes, sir. And there's re huge reports of systemic corruption and human rights abuses. In the context of all of this, is it time to reevaluate our relationship, which has been quite cozy with the uh, president of Honduras? Senator, we're, we're constantly demanding that uh the leadership in Honduras take this these set of facts on board. We're, we're, we're well aware of what's taking place. And like in too many countries around the world, um, we've not had the effect that we desire. We're, we're working on it. Senator Young. Thank you. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Good to have you here. Todd. In response to media coverage over the last few days in the Washington Post, NBC News, the Daily Beast, and my hometown newspaper, the Indianapolis Star, I'd like to bring up the situation of Peter Kasich and three other Americans who lost their lives at the hands of ISIS. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to request the following columns from uh, the Washington Post, Indy Star, and NBC News be added to the record. They'll be included. Mr. Secretary, you may recall meeting with the Kasich family last year, mm -hmm. but as a brief uh, refresher, in October 2013, Indiana native and former Army Ranger Peter Kasich was on a mission of mercy. He was delivering humanitarian aid to suffering people in Syria. 
He was taken hostage by ISIS, and sadly, after months of torture and incredible hardship at the hands of these ISIS terrorists, and in spite of his embrace of Islam, he was brutally beheaded. Sadly, three other Americans, James Foley, Stephen Sotloff, and Kayla Mueller, also lost their lives at the hands of ISIS murderers. I know each of their stories are familiar to other members of this committee. Since that time, some of the murders, known as the Beatles, have been killed in U.S.-led drone strikes. But others remain at large. And I know you agree, they must be brought to justice. I believe that the United States government should work tirelessly, independently, and with the cooperation of allies to hunt down the killers of these Americans and bring them to justice here in the United States of America. Mr. Secretary, do you agree with me? I do, and you should know that the President of the United States agrees as well. What efforts can the State Department and our missions overseas take to bring this about? So it's a broad effort. Um, I think we're making progress. It's the Department of Defense, their intelligence assets, the broader set of U.S. intelligence assets all aimed at making sure we understand, and then working with important partners, too, who... Um, who, who want justice but have a, a different set of rules about how to think about that. So working to convince them uh, that proceeding to bring them to justice is the right approach. I, I am I'm very hopeful that we will in the coming weeks have a, a, a good outcome here. You alluded to uh, different perspectives that exist out there. What precise obstacles stand in the way and, and what can you do to overcome them? So, so an example, and I'll stay away from this particular instance, but an example is uh, some, when, when we make a decision from time to time to bring someone back from, a, from someplace else, either through extradition or through, uh, through another legal process, uh, uh, the country will say because we have a death penalty or because of a certain set of rules we have here, they won't either permit that to happen or share the information that we might need to complete a yes. successful prosecution. And uh, uh, one of our roles is to make sure that those countries will permit us to do that. I do want to interject, and, and it's important to note here though you were just using uh, an example, it's my understanding that the four families are no longer pursuing the death penalty for these terrorists. Uh, their hope is, is that uh, this shift will alleviate any challenges whatsoever uh, that we've encountered with the British government and their justice system in allowing the prosecution uh, to move forward in the United States. I appreciate that, Senator Young, um, and that, that's, that's important. It, um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yes, I am committed to working with you, uh, and I suspect there are other members of this committee who will join me uh, in the, that effort to, uh, to, to ensure that justice is delivered and delivered here in the United States. Uh, will you commit to working with me in this committee to ensure that um, uh, we pursue this matter accordingly? Of course. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you. I'd like to um, move to the United Nations and how over the past several years, Mr. Secretary, uh, the U.S. has lost ground in its engagement with a number of U.N. bodies and programs. Most recently, the administration formally submitted paperwork to withdraw from the World Health Organization. At the same time, the role and influence of other countries, particularly um, the communist uh, government in China, has been growing at the U.N., it's expanded its role in a range of UN agencies, uh, with Chinese nationals currently holding the top job in four of the organization's 15 specialized agencies. 
the International Civil Aviation Organization, the Food and Agricultural Organization, the International Telecom Union, and the UN Industrial Development Organization. For comparison, a French national leads two specialized agencies, the IMF and UNESCO. Uh, the UK leads one, the ILO, and the US le leads just one, the World Bank. Um, although a US national does lead the UN uh, Children's Fund and the, uh, the World Food Program, which are large and, and prominent UN organizations. So building on, on Senator Murphy's earlier line of questioning, uh, why don't we look beyond the World Health Organization, and I ask you, Mr. Secretary, what implications does this, um, uh, this uh, losing of ground uh, within uh, UN bodies and agencies uh, have on advancing U.S. national security interests and other foreign policy priorities um, that we might have in the UN system? Yeah, it's very significant, and it is a... Uh at least 15-year-long slide that has taken place and growth of the Chinese Communist Party's influence in these institutions and organizations. Um, we've done a couple things to turn this around. We had real success at the World International Property Organization, right? The Chinese thought they had the fast track to that. We put up a good candidate. It wasn't an American candidate, um, but it was a candidate that we believe uh, has an understanding of intellectual property in the same way that uh, freedom-loving democracies do, and we crushed them. And it was a amazing a diplomatic effort. We built up coalitions with the Indians, the Brits, the Australians, and then built it out all across the world. Uh, we're asking for about $20 million in this budget to take the team that we built there and make it a permanent team that is focused on these major elections for these 15 institutions. And then there's another set that are slightly different but still very important. And then we have a second set of operations, which is it's not just the leaders that matter at these UN organizations. They have big bureaucracies underneath them. And we are, uh, sadly, uh, inadequately represented at every level inside of these international bodies, and it matters. It matters that there's someone there. Uh, it matters that they're American, but it matters that they, uh, if they're not American, that they come from the nations that understand uh, the rule of law and uh, how uh, the world ought to be conducted in a way that we do. And so um, I've actually worked closely with about seven other countries to build out an effort that is very focused on exactly this. Sometimes, frankly, we've had opportunities. We just didn't put a, put, we were offered a place and didn't put anybody forward. Uh, that's not the right way to go. We need to make sure we get it right. Uh, I'm confident that in a year and two years, we'll be in a better place than we are today, and I hope we'll have the resources to do that. It's a little bit of a resource issue, but it's a lot of a focus issue, and I've, I think I've cleaned that up materially. Senator Purdue. Um, I want to correct the record on a couple of things here that uh, have been said uh, this morning. First of all, uh, I believe that Secretary Tillerson's two predecessors uh, oversaw probably one of the most major withdrawals in foreign policy from the global stage that America has ever, se ever seen. And it created a power vacuum that uh, allowed um, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China uh, to step into that vacuum and actually during that period of time created a caliphate, a physical caliphate that allowed the rise of ISIS in Syria. Such that in January of 2017, Mr. Secretary, I believe that the world was more dangerous than any time in my lifetime. We faced five threats across five domains, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China, and terrorism across air, land, and sea. And all of a sudden we woke up and realized that our, our would-be adversaries have been developing capabilities in cyber and space that the prior administration had not really warned us about. So we woke up 
And we, I think we've all now figured out uh, in the United States, I think there's consensus on both sides. For the last 50 years, with all good intentions, we got China wrong. I think there's a general awakening to that. You have had three other cabinet members, along with yourself, make tremendous policy speeches here just in the last month. And um, I'd, like to, I'd like to quote some of that uh, that, you, uh, that you wrote about, but you had Secretary O'Brien, or National Security Advisor O'Brien, talk about ideology, uh, FBI Director Ray talk about espionage, uh, Attorney General Barr talk about economics, and you talked about the warning here. Um, I'm gonna quote, this is your quote, we had a very clear purpose in those four speeches, a real mission. It was to explain the different facets of America's relationship with China, the massive imbalances in that relationship that have built up over decades and the Chinese Communist Party's design for hegemony. It's interesting you chose that word because the Chinese love to quote Confucius. And they quote one of his famous sayings is just as there can't be two, and they do this recently, just as there can't be two suns in the sky, there can't be two emperors on the earth. And the word they use for emperor is not benign dictator, which is the most common use of that translation. It's hegemon. They want to be the hegemon that they feel like they were for 4,000 years. You said further, our goal was to make clear that the threats to Americans that President Trump's China policy aims to address are clear and our strategy for securing those freedoms established. You went on to say later in there, closing this out, you said securing, and I think this is the most important sentence in this speech, in my opinion, um, securing our freedoms from the Chinese Communist Party is the mission of our time, and America is perfectly positioned to lead it because of our founding principles Give us that opportunity. Tremendous statement. That, that will go down in history. The fact that only 6% of Chinese popu or China's population belong to the Communist Party, Mr. Secretary, I would argue that our fight's not with the Chinese people, it's with the Communist Party. There's a statement from the administration here dated May 26, 2020. It says, we do not seek to contain China's development, nor do we wish to disengage from the Chinese people. Can you articulate what the threats the Chinese Communist Party threaten, or, um, makes or represents to our democracy and our freedoms here? And what are we doing as a Chinese strategy as we try to manage during your administration here, as we try to manage this turn in our relationship with China to confront them, to stand up to them, but also to uh, protect our freedoms here at home? So Senator, there, there, are, there are multiple fronts to this. And these aren't created by the Department of State. They're created by what the Chinese Communist Party says, to your, to your point. And President Trump recognized that. He talked about it in his campaign back, back as far as two, 2015. Um, we, we've got to get this imbalance corrected. And when we do, there will be costs associated with that. Uh, we're, we've got the largest increase in our military buildup that President Trump has led. Um, we're, we're very focused on a, an arms control strategic dialogue that we're having today. It was, it was in Vienna on the 27th and 28th of this month, so a few days back. We, need, we know we need China to be part of that too. They're now a significant nuclear power. We've seen what's happened on the economic front. We see their Belt and Road Initiative, so there are, they're competing. Senator Rubio talked about their efforts in, in four or five technology spheres. This is a multi-front campaign. It will take not only the United States government, but the United States citizens to understand this challenge. And then we've got to build out the global alliance. And, and last thing I'll say here is I've seen, I've seen it said that the United States is asking nations to pick sides between China and the United States. It's fundamentally false. We're asking every sovereign country to pick between freedom and tyranny. And that's the choice every leader's got to make. And that's when I go around the world, that's what I talk to them about. And they all know. 
they all know that uh, the United States is the country that they want to be alongside. They all know that freedom and and our value system and the rule of law and property rights and the protection of these unalienable rights is central to their country. And it's why I think the tide is turning around the world and that people are seeing the Chinese Communist Party for what it is, uh, the threat to the security of their people. I agree with the tyranny freedom. I characterize it a little different. There's state control and there's self-determination. The world's turning into a binary uh, equation. Uh, Russia, China, Venezuela, Cuba. If you add up all the GDPs of those state-controlled countries, it's probably less than $20 trillion. If you add up the GDP of all the rest of self-determination, that's over $70 trillion, Mr. Secretary. I want to relate that back to the last question here that, relate, that goes to your comments earlier about the number one thing we do. I think you agreed with it a thousand percent with Senator Murphy about allies being the answer here with China. That a, 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 and this is a huge effort that's going to take years to develop. But right now we have an opportunity with uh, the Quad, uh, the quadri uh, Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. This is United States, India, Japan, Australia. And a great development is happening right now that India is very strongly considering inviting Australia to that exercise Malabar. Mm -hmm. Would you comment on how important this particular uh, group is in relation to the bigger conversation you just mentioned, the fact that the GDP of the Quad is more than twice that of China today yeah. is, to, is not to be lost on the conversation. Would you just make one last comment on that, please? Yeah, it's, it's more populous than China as well. Yes. Uh, these, are, these are nations that all have uh, elected leaders, uh, all have democracies, all understand uh, in different cultures and different settings – all have a central understanding about how uh, commercial enterprise should be conducted and how uh, militaries should engage and about how security is actually achieved. Uh, the good news is uh, I think this grouping is uh, stronger than it's ever been. Maybe we were gifted by General Secretary Xi. He, he, uh, he, he, he took actions that caused each of the leaders in those countries to recognize the value of this group. I, I meet with them with some frequency, either by phone or in person, and we're working on economic efforts together. We're, we're working on COVID responses together. There's lots of places where we're finding common touch points where we can develop uh, real strength and unity that can, in fact, provide the bulwark that we can build out from all across the world. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Thank you Senator Purdue. Senator Graham. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. I appreciate the good job you do for our country and uh, leaning into hard issues forcefully, and we need more of that, not less. Uh, when it comes to uh, a U.N. envoy for Libya, do you support that we need a new one? Yes. Good. And I'm going to try to get a letter from everybody in the committee to the U.N. Secretary General saying, please appoint a special envoy. And, Mr. Secretary, anything we can do to up our game would be great. I know you work with the Berlin folks, and yes. we'll see if we can uh, And we need the right stability. envoy, too, Senator. I know you agree with that, not just a new one, but the, the right person as well. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, the Caesars Act, uh, thank you for using it quickly and in a holding aside son accountable is a great first step in what I think will be a long journey to punish this regime. Is more coming? Yes, Senator. Uh, thank you. Great job. Um, our, I talked to General Mazloon yesterday with the SDF. Apparently, they've signed a deal with an American oil company Mm -hmm. to uh, to modernize the oil fields in northeastern Syria. Are you supportive of that? We are. That would be a great way to help everybody in northeastern Syria. The deal took a little longer, Senator, than we had hoped, and we now we're in implementation. It yeah, could be uh, very powerful. You've been terrific in that regard. Uh, when it comes to Afghanistan, is it my understanding correct that any withdrawal from Afghanistan will be conditions-based? That's correct. 
and the inter-Afghan dialogue hopefully will start here fairly soon. Yes. Yeah, hopefully. Yes. So I applaud you. I don't mean to make light of that. We're very hopeful that in the next week, I I fear that I may have said that once before. Right. Uh, But uh, we we see the conditions that have not completed enough tasks that we we think there's a real chance we can. Well, in case the Taliban are following the hearing, I doubt if they are. Uh, I'm a pretty hoggish guy on Afghanistan. You've been great on foreign policy in general from my point of view. Uh, I'd like to end the war, too, and I'd like to get the Taliban integrated into a new Afghanistan that respects the rights of women where everybody can have a say through the democratic process. And uh, the Taliban are part of the Afghan culture. They're a minority. They're not, they're by no means a a dominant voice in Afghanistan. But if we could help Pakistan and Afghanistan achieve a working relationship they've never had before on terrorism, we could get an inter-Afghan dialogue started. Uh, I am willing to invest in an Afghanistan that, that, uh, uh, has a place for the Taliban, but not to the exclusion of women or religious minorities. So count me in for your efforts, and I very much appreciate what Zal is doing and, um, and, and Adam. Uh, when it comes to China, is it fair to say that in 2020, Chinese Communist Party is running concentration camps to, uh, that house religious minorities? Be careful about the language. Uh, I've described it this way, Senator. It is the, something like it. It is the worst human rights violation that we have seen this century. Okay, fair enough. That's a good description. You closed the Houston consulate down because they were using the diplomatic platform to cheat, steal, and lie when it comes to intellectual property. That that uh, intellectual property and other items as well. Yes. Uh, the special status of Hong Kong has been virtually destroyed. Is that fair to say? Yes. And I appreciate you speaking about it and taking action. Uh, When it comes to the rule of law, the uh, Chinese Communist Party sees it's more of a nuisance than anything else. Uh, I think the the litter of promises broken across multiple uh, forums uh, demonstrates that they take those agreements for having very little value. If you got a property dispute, you generally don't build a military base on the contested property. You actually go to some kind of court and, and work it out. We just passed in the Judiciary Committee legislation modeled on JASTA, allowing uh, Americans who have been victims of the coronavirus to sue the Chinese Communist Party. Have you? Do you support that? I, I haven't had a chance to take a look at it. We'll get it to you, and Thank please you. give back to us if you could. Uh, bottom line... <clears throat> Syria is never going to end until we get the the entire uh, fabric of Syrian society in a room working together. The northeastern footprint we have, where we're working with the SDF who helped us destroy the ISIS caliphate, they did most of the heavy fighting. Uh, that gives us leverage. I appreciate you being an advocate for the SDF. I appreciate that you've uh, tried to work uh, with the new leadership in Iraq, it's important that ISIS never come back. It's important that we uh, have a say about that part of the world. Um, finally, as to Iran, where do you see the Iranian regime in terms of their potency? Are the sanctions working? And what would you advise this committee to do going forward with Iran? So, Senator, the, the sanctions have clearly had an impact. 
Uh, it has diminished their capacity to underwrite Hezbollah, the Shia militias in Iraq, uh, but clearly hasn't achieved the ultimate objective, which is to change the behavior of the Iranian regime. Uh, and so uh, our, our view is this. Uh, we're, we're happy uh, to see them change, but until such time as they do, we see the best tools to starve the regime of the capacity to inflict terror around the world. So your support in doing that uh, is very important. And I talked a little bit earlier, I think you hadn't arrived just yet, about the UN arms embargo that we're working so diligently to make sure it doesn't expire in a couple months. Well, one last topic. And again, thank you. I think you've done a very good job from my point of view for our country, leaning into really difficult issues uh, forcefully and, and with reason. Developmental aid, uh, the House $3 trillion bill didn't have any money for vaccines going to the developing world. The Republican bill has about $4 billion. Um, I would urge you to work with us to try to find a way, if we can get a vaccine developed, to get it to the developing world, sort of like what we did with the PEPFAR, because it will do no good to eradicate it here if we don't eradicate it everywhere. Uh, would you work with us in that regard? Yes, we've, we've presented something that, that we've given the name Piper Pro, something that's modeled on PEPFAR that ultimately we think could be very successful if we can get a vaccine. We're happy to work with you all on it. Thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Senator Graham. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Secretary, welcome. Senator. Thank you for your testimony and thank you for your service as well. Uh, let's cover a number of topics. Let's start with Nord Stream 2. Uh, you and I have worked for some time on Nord Stream 2 and stopping the completion of that pipeline. Uh, as you know, uh, over a year ago, I joined with Senator Shaheen in passing bipartisan legislation, went through both houses of Congress with overwhelming bicameral bipartisan support imposing significant sanctions on companies that participated in laying the pipeline of Nord Stream 2. Uh, the President signed that legislation around 7 p.m., if I remember correctly, on a Thursday, and 15 minutes before that his signature was on the page, the Swiss company that was laying the pipeline announced they were immediately ceasing all pipeline construction activities. So that those sanctions worked. Russia has not stopped. They have a pipeline that is 90 to 95% complete. Now, the good thing about a pipeline is a pipeline that is 95% complete is a pipeline that is 0% complete because it ain't transmitting anything till they connect the two ends. Uh, it is my intention that they never complete this pipeline. Both Russia and Germany continue to press forward aggressively to try to find ways to complete this pipeline. As you know, Senator Shaheen and I, again, introduced even stronger sanctions uh, to any companies involved in any way whatsoever with the construction of the pipeline. Those stronger sanctions were included in the NDAA that passed this, this body with overwhelming bipartisan support just last week. And so I'm hopeful as the NDAA moves forward that we will have those stronger sanctions in effect. At the same time, you made an important decision within the State Department. Uh, under CATSA, the administration has the authority, I believe, to sanction companies working to build this pipeline. Your predecessor, Secretary Tillerson, had issued, as I understand it, a guidance that was widely interpreted as essentially exempting Nord Stream 2. And, and you made the right decision to rescind that guidance. Can you explain to the committee 
the importance of that guidance and what authority the, the administration has right now today with no additional legislation to sanction any company, any German company, any other company that participates in any way with completing this pipeline. Yep. So thanks, Senator Cruz. Uh, the president made that decision to change that language. Uh, it was my recommendation, so I'm not walking away from it. I, but I want to make sure everybody knew the president was fully on board with that uh, that change. Uh, that language was important because, to your point, and this is a little bit too simple, um, but it was essentially get out of jail free card for those uh, conducting activities surrounding Nord Stream 2. That's no longer true. And both the State Department and the Department of Treasury have made very clear in our conversations with those who have equipment there. And we can see that they're responding, as are their insurers, their board of directors, their lawyers, all understand the uh, express threat that is posed to them for continuing to complete work on completion of the pipeline. And we, we remain hopeful that those who have the capacity to finish this pipeline quickly won't be able to do so. They'll choose not to because of these sanctions. And then we have the task of those that are harder to reach by sanctions, uh, making sure that we do everything we can to stop them. The president's been so clear about the security threat that the Nitro Stream 2 pipeline poses to Europe. We've not been able to convince the Germans of that. Um, so we're, we're taking action ourselves to try and accomplish that, to preserve security for the European people. So Secretary Pompeo, I know you care about this issue. I spent about six hours with the President yesterday in Air Force One, and uh, Nord Stream 2 came up in, in considerable depth, uh, as did the President's frustrations with the leadership of Germany. Uh, let me point out that the State Department has a long tradition of sometimes uh, obscure speech, perhaps rivaled only by the Federal Reserve. Um, this is an issue in which ambiguity is not beneficial. And as you know, the Russians are actively pushing disinformation that they're not going to be sanctions for anyone involved in this pipeline. The Russians actively pushed disinformation that the bipartisan legislation I inter had introduced previously was not going to pass. That was wrong. I remember that. And we had overwhelming bipartisan support that passed it into law. And, and so I would encourage, I believe under CATSA, you have full legal authority right now to make clear and explicitly clear to anyone involved with constructing this pipeline that the consequences of doing so are catastrophic and not worth doing. And so I would encourage the State Department, and I recognize you work within an administration, and there may be other agencies that have different views, but if there are, those other agencies aren't right in this matter. And so I urge you to speak with absolute clarity because it is only that clarity, I think, that has any prayer of actually stopping yeah. the completion of this pipeline. And if the pipeline is completed, it will do serious damages to the economic interest and the national security interest of Europe. It will do serious damage to the economic and national security interest of the United States. And it will benefit Putin and put billions of dollars in his pocket. Uh, there's no need for ambiguity. The president hasn't been ambiguous about this at all. Uh, there was a reason that we made the change in that, that language, what, essentially the waiver language, if you will. Uh, we're full and fully intent of sanctioning those that violate the provisions that are contained there, both in CATS uh, and otherwise. Thank you. That, that, that's helpful. Let's, let's shift to I another area. that's clear enough. I, <laughs> that last statement had, had, had substantially greater clarity, and so I am, I am grateful and look forward to amplifying Thank it loudly. You. Thank you, Senator. Um, let's shift to another topic that you and I have also discussed at length, 
uh, which is Iran snapback. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe maximum pressure should be ma- maximum pressure, that the Iranian regime, the Ayatollah, when he says death to America, that he means it, that when he says death to Israel, that he means it, under the terms of the Obama-Iran nuclear deal and the UN Security Council resolution implementing it, the United States has the authority to invoke snapback sanctions if and when Iran is in violation of the deal. We have that authority even though we have withdrawn from that deal. Iran is now nakedly, openly, flagrantly flouting the deal. They're not pretending to comply with it. It is obvious they are defying it, and they're telling us they're defying it. Will the United States invoke the snapback sanctions, which would result in reimposing not just American sanctions, but far broader sanctions on Iran for their violations of the deal? I think the president's been very clear. We, we believe we have this authority. I've spoken to this a couple of times. We believe that under UN Security Council Resolution 2231, we clearly have the authority to do this and that we are not going to permit this arms embargo to expire on October 18th. We're going to introduce a UN Security Council Resolution, we hope, will be met with approval from the other uh, members of the P5. In the event that it's not, we're going to take the action necessary uh, to ensure that this arms embargo doesn't expire. We have the capacity to execute snapback, and we're going to use it in a way that protects and defends America. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Mr. Secretary, we promised you a hard stop at 1130. Uh, We uh, like to keep our commitments, and uh, we have by about 30 seconds, according to my clock. Thank you so much for your uh, service to the United States of America. Thank you for uh, uh, working with this committee as as you have. We sincerely appreciate it. For information of the members, the record will remain open until close of business on Friday, and any uh, responses that are given will be made part of the record. With that, again, thank you, Mr. Secretary, and this uh, hearing is adjourned. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member.